Coming to you from the Troy Lee Design Saloon in Corona, California, it's the Whiskey Throttle Show, bringing you the legends and leaders of our sport with your host, David Pingree. This week's guest is brought to you by Yamaha, the leaders in the power sports industry. Motocross bikes, street bikes, adventure bikes, generators, side-by-sides, quads, boats. Yamaha sets the standard. Yamaha revs your heart. Today's guest is presented by Therabody, the world leader in human performance, wellness, and recovery. The pioneers of percussive therapy, Therabody changed the game with the Theragun device. Their arsenal has grown to include recovery compression systems, power.electric muscle stimulators, adjustable vibrating foam rollers, and a complete line of organic wellness solutions with their TheraOne lineup. Whether you are a world-class athlete or you are just looking to improve your overall health, TheraBody has the tools to help. Today's show brought to you in part by Method Race Wheels, the strongest, lightest, fastest wheels in off-road. Method dominates the off-road market, and they have the wheels for your truck, sprinter, SUV, Jeep, or van. SKDA Graphics. SKDA has turned the motorcycle graphic design world on its head by bringing a fast, fresh look into the sport. From outside-the-box designs to retro looks to a complete line of Whiskey Throttle show graphics, SKDA is operating on a completely different plane than the rest. With free global shipping on orders of over $100 and unrivaled customer service, right now is the time to freshen up the look of your ride. Troy Lee Designs. Built for the world's fastest racers, Troy Lee Designs blends elite-level protection with a history of industry-leading style and performance. From motocross gear to custom paint to bicycle protection, Troy Lee Designs is waiting for you on the next level. Thank you for joining us here at the Whiskey Throttle Show. I'm your host, David Pingree, and a really special guest today, somebody I've been excited to have on for a long time, Mr. Mark Blackwell, 1971 500 <laughs> national champion. Long time ago. <laughs> Welcome to the show, Mark. Thank you. It's great to Thank have you. you. I got told by Mitch Payton and a handful of guys for the last couple of years, you got to get Mark on. I said, okay, all right, yeah, I'm good. I got him on the list. And I've been bugging you for a little while, and you're like, who the hell is this David Pingree guy? <laughs> but uh, we got you on. That's Thank all that you. matters. I'm Thank very you. excited. Grateful to be here. Uh, so we start out with Method Race Wheels Front End Chatter, our opening segment here. They build you the lightest, strongest, fastest wheels in off-road. So if you have a truck, sprinter, UTV, side-by-side something uh, that you're trying to make look a little better, or you're actually out doing some off-roading, go to Method Race Wheels. Uh, wow. 20% off using the code Whiskey Throttle, so you save yourself a lot of money. And uh, best product <coughs> on the market, hands down. So check those guys out. Uh, I want to start by asking you a question. You, you did some, quite a bit of racing in Europe, and obviously here in the U.S., Compare those two for me. What was it like, particularly back in those days, because it was much different in the 70s, um, racing in Europe versus racing here? So there wasn't much information here in America about motocross in Europe, because that's where it came from, of course. And so I looked at things like um, the Continental Report from in the back of Cycle World, mm -hmm. when Cycle World was a big magazine. And it had pictures of guys racing in Europe, and it was like, what is that? You know, and we didn't know what motocross was when I started. Okay. Um, and the sport I was involved in the very beginning of the sport of motocross coming to America, and they didn't really know what it was. And they would dig holes in the ground and fill it with water and say that's a European style mud hole. There's no European <laughs> style mud holes. I'm serious. A mud hole's a mud hole. A mud hole's a mud hole. <laughs> but it was like no, it rains in Europe, and when it rains. 
they race in the mud. They don't dig a hole and fill it full of water. Sure, right, right, right. So it was so different. And uh, so there were two really important people in my life. One is called Mr. Edison Dye, okay. and one is Torsten Hallman. And the young people today don't know who Torsten Hallman is, but it's Thor, if you think of Thor, which is Torsten Hallman Off-Road, which is a brand owned by Parts Unlimited. Mm -hmm. But back in the day, Torsten, he came and he put on motocross schools, built tracks and did uh, exhibition races to show people what motocross was. Mm -hmm. And that was Edison Dye's vision. Edison was the, Mr. Edison Dye, was the West Coast importer of Husqvarna motorcycles. And I was lucky enough to be there around the same time. Mm. And he hired me and I was 16. And he said, Mark, if you will go to Europe and live in Sweden for the summer, I will, I will pay for your trip, but I want you to learn everything you can and bring that back to America to help us in, you know, basically, he was talking from a riding perspective. Learn well, from he those was a, riders and yeah and, yeah, and bring the sport of motocross to America. Yeah. To help us grow the sport. Okay. So um, So I literally turned seventeen in Sweden, living in, you know, yeah. motocross. And if you compare racing there to here, was it more obviously they were more advanced, they were much better riders in those yeah. that era. Um, but but what was different? Did it just seem like it was light years ahead there? It and did. you'd come back here so, and you were, you know. It sounds stupid, but it was like the first backflip. It was like before the first backflip. That's how advanced they were. Like yeah. we would look at them and go, how do they do that? They would they would ride up the uphill and dance the motorcycle on the back wheel, like magically. And we were like, how did they do that? And hmm. so David Bailey's got a story where he um, rode with Roger somewhere over in Europe. He was very young, and Roger was still at his peak, I believe, and, and David said he passed him. Roger passed him, and he, he caught some little bump going over a hill and stepped all the way over the thing and jumped like halfway down the hill. And he goes, David was recalling this day from like way back in the day like it was yesterday. He goes, I'll never get that image out of my brain. And so I recall the day that I watched David jump going up in uh, Millville, Minnesota, going up the big uphill, and he hit the bump halfway up the hill and jumped over the top. And he landed. did the same thing. He did the same thing. <laughs> and I remember the day in Finland, the week that Danny Laporte won the first 250 World American Championship. David did the same thing. There was a, uh, you know, back in the day, they didn't know what it was, but it was up, flat, down, and everyone would go and jump and land and jump off. And David cleared the whole fucking thing. Excuse mm. my language. Was this at Millville? It, no, this was oh, in, in Finland. In Finland. In Finland. And he cleared the whole thing, landed on the front wheel, and roosted. He saw that, what you just said, yeah. and he practiced it and made it. Was, and he probably blew people's minds he when he did. did that, right? He did. That's cool. Yeah, you, you've lived through all of these eras from really the beginning of the sport to now. And there's, there's not a lot of folks that can give us that perspective. I asked Brad the same kind of questions. Like, hey, yeah. you know, compare and contrast because it's, you've seen it from every decade, which right. is so cool. It's fun. Um, I'm there's no There's no one in baseball, football that can say that, right? <laughs> it, our sport's young enough that we have this generation. It's 50 seen, years. Yeah. It's 50 years. So cool to me. Roughly. So in the same vein, um, if you had to name or pick the biggest advancements in motocross, 
over these years? What would you say they are? Well, give me a couple of two or three. For sure, suspension, right? Because mm. um, motors haven't changed that much, and now we're in electric, which is coming. <clears throat> but for sure, <clears throat> suspension. So you think in the old days, we had like girling shocks yeah. with three inches of travel. And like when I go to the my annual physical and my doctor looks at my back and goes, Mark, you have all these fractures in your yeah. spine. Like, do you know how that could have happened? I go, no idea. <laughs> no idea. Right? We used to jump off shit and land and we have micro fractures, but it makes you stronger. Yeah. So, but I think suspension, because like, if you think about motors, the horsepower has increased. Mm. It's all about smoothness and throttle control. But I think if you look back to like the early 80s, right? Well, actually the 70s, it was 73 when Mako, right? The did the first long travel. Long travel yeah. at, and, and we saw it first in uh, Carlsbad at the USGP, right? Mm. Mm -hmm. Like it, they'd shown it a couple of weeks before in Germany, I think, but that was magical, like a big difference, right? And you can still ride those bikes pretty fast. You know, yeah. they, that, that you, you're right. That was a big step because that bike still today, you could go out and go pretty quick on it. I think so. Where if you, you go back to the, you know, bikes before that, you couldn't really jump them much. It was, it was a lot about managing the bike more so than just going fast where today it's, as fast as you can go. 12 or 14 inches of travel versus yeah. two, maybe two and a half functional. Yeah, that's wild. Um, well, listen, uh, first of all, uh, great start. I, I love hearing this stuff about this era. I wanna send everyone over. Please go check out. June 1st, we are relaunching our website, whiskeythrottleshow.com, also gonna be kind of rebranded as whiskeythrottlemedia.com. We've got new features, our site lap race preview show, riders meeting race review show, Ask Ping is coming back in a, in a video format nice. as well as a written column. Nice. Uh, we've got a medical blog that's going to be done by Arden Ballard, who is a PA and uh, certified athletic trainer. Some awesome information on managing your own injuries, preventing injuries, and also helping others uh, if you find somebody down on the track. Really important stuff. Uh, just a lot of cool content we're going to bring to you, as well as a couple of bike tests. And I can't give these away all the way yet, but we're going down to Star Yamaha Racing here in Tallahassee in a couple weeks. And we're gonna shoot some fun stuff. So I'll just leave it at that. Uh, so check us out over there. Kind of a relaunch June 1, it's gonna be really neat. Uh, this is brought to you by Therabody. If you guys have not uh, gone over and checked out the PowerDot or the Theragun, all the tools they have there, go to therabody.com and they're bringing you That's good Mr. Stuff. Blackwell today. Great company. Good stuff. So take me back to your beginnings. Where did you grow up? Where were you born? So I grew up in, uh, I was born in Manhattan Beach, California. Okay. Grew up in Hawthorne, so near LAX. Yep. Way to think of it. And uh, at that time, you know, motorcycling was very small. It was a very um, 50,000 bikes a year sold, for okay. example. And it was, the imagery was kind of the uh, big, heavy mm. motorcycles. And then along came on any Sunday, right? Mm -hmm. And Which was what, 70? 71, I 71, think. okay. 71, two, maybe. Yeah. But it, it changed the image of the mm -hmm. sport. And I was right there at the cusp. And uh, um, I was lucky enough to live in a place where I could ride my Honda 50 that I bought with paper route money All right. down the railroad tracks to the Standard Oil fields. And I could ride around. And we started kind of racing, two of us, and figure eight, which is pretty stupid, right? <laughs> figure eight. That's an adrenaline rush, <laughs> <Yeah>. if nothing else. <laughs> 
but but the sport took off then and i was lucky enough to be at the beginning and uh on any sunday was like gas on the fire mm. right so i was before that because i was already racing in europe as i described before and uh mr die you know had the foresight to so he was the john penton if that name yep. rings a bell so john was the east course or east coast importer of mm -hmm. husqvarna and Edison Dye was the West Coast importer. Okay. And Edison was selling, you know, bikes to Malcolm Smith and guys like that that would ride in the desert. But he realized the sport of motocross could make his business so big. Mm. So he's an entrepreneur. And he said, Mark, go to Europe, meet this guy, Torsten Holman, bring the sport to America, and we can, like, blow it up, mm. which he did. And then he, he put on what became the Interam series, which was way before the Trans Am series. Right. And he put these races and he, it was kind of like an exhibition. And he showed people what motocross was and it just took off. Mm. It just took off. Whatever they did worked. Does that make because, sense? Yes, absolutely. And, and you can see the trajectory of the sport in that era. Obviously what he was doing was working. Um, and you say you, you speak to him regularly? He's, he's passed now. Oh, he is. Yeah. Oh. And uh, last fall, I actually became uh, the most recent recipient of the Edison Die Award. Oh, I know Edison. I, I meant Torsten. I'm sorry. Oh, no. Torsten's still alive. Yeah. But, but no, no. Uh, I was supposed to be there now. Okay. I couldn't go. But he's uh, he's in his 70s. He's really good. But he's had a few heart, heart okay. attacks. So, But he's a he's as sharp as he ever was. Mm. Brilliant man. Hmm. And, so you're, you're, you're down here in, uh, in Southern California. Um, what, was, what was the riding, and there wasn't much racing probably even going on, but what was that kind of scene like at the time? Oh, great question. So where I lived in Hawthorne, California, not too far from LAX, it was just dirt fields, and it was uh, Standard Oil, which was the oil company, owned the fields, and we used to sneak out there and ride, and nobody said anything. And, yeah. And we raced and did stuff. And then we started reading um, in the back of a uh, little bit AMA magazine. And then eventually Cycle News, we started reading about the sport of motocross in Europe. Mm. And we realized there was something much bigger. Because I was kind of a TT flat track AMA guy. That's all there really was. That's all there was. Yeah. yeah. And so the now this enchanting sport of motocross and these guys, they were like, it would be like people from Mars. I know that sounds crazy, but it was like they were from somewhere else. Yeah. And they were doing these different things. And, you know, it was like if someone did a backflip, like in, you know, before it ever happened, right? Before it yeah. It seems like what they're doing was like, like impossible. What, what are they doing? Like they're dancing the motorcycle on the back wheel up the hill and passing us. And we're like in, yeah. you know, just, I couldn't believe what they were doing. Yeah. So it was it was kind of an elevation, right, to another level of mm. the sport. And it opened our imaginations up and we started to think, wow. I mean, Flat Track is great and Gary Nixon was my first hero and all those guys, Mert Lowell that was mm. in, right, on an East Sunday. Yep. And like, that was, but it just took it to a new level yeah, of what absolutely. the sport could become. Do you have any siblings? I do. Did they ride and stuff as well? My brother or? did, yeah. Is that how you got your first bike? Just brothers, you, uh, or how no, did it? I, uh, I bought my first bike with my paper out money. I bought a Honda 50 step through, 
And my dad and mom kind of looked the other way, didn't <laughs> like it. Yeah. No, because in those days, motorcycling had a very yeah. negative image. It's it all Hell's like, Angels, right? It was like, Hell's Angels, yeah. Marlon Brando, the wild ones. And that's why On Any Sunday was so important because it changed, it yeah. opened up the world. And for me, like a lot of my friends were in trouble. They were mm. gotten drugs and bad shit. And I had motorcycles and it was a focal point for me. Mm -hmm. And it was a blessing. And my parents, once they saw that, they just said like, dude, if you get good grades in school, ride all you want. Yeah. It was a, so how did you, what, what made you want to buy that bike? Did you see some people riding or yeah, what? Yeah, I had a friend that he had a Honda 50 and he, okay. he took me out to a field and okay. let me ride it. And it was like, and prior to that, that's a great question. Cause prior to that I was in baseball, football, and then I was a coach and it was like team sports. And I love teams, that's all I do now is build teams. But back then it was like I was at a point in my life where I wanted, I want to do something that's kind of for me. Mm -hmm. And when I rode that motorcycle, it was like magical. Yeah. Magical. Yeah. Like I was in control. I was responsible. It was like, it it's powerful. It was powerful. Yeah. So. That, I think that's something that's, um, ties all, all the motocross riders, people who ride or off-road, doesn't matter. Yeah. Even street bikes, I would say there, there's a freedom and a clarity of mind and a, a catharsis of going out and twisting a throttle. And it's, it's hard to find elsewhere. I, and I, I think you said that <laughs> word clarity or those, that phrase clarity of mind. I yeah. think that's true. Yeah. I think it's Absolutely. true. Um, do you remember your first race other than the figure eight, uh, figure eight of death? <laughs> yeah, Elsinore Raceway, not that far from Is that right? Me. Yeah. Okay. We had a teaching track there and I raced and I got second. Everyone says I won my first race. I didn't. I okay. got second. All right. But I think that's good because it made me want to beat the next guy. <laughs> but you were competitive right away, huh? Yeah. I mean. I loved it. That's it was cool. Fun. Um, and that's before motocross. Well, oh yeah. It was a TT type of thing. TT at Elsinore. Yeah. Um, was there anyone that you grew up riding or racing with that also went on to do well? Or kind of who was your crew at that time? Not really. No. It was me. Well, there's a, a fun story that you'll appreciate. So I went to school, high school, with a guy called Donnie Emler, who started I've FMF. Heard of yeah. <laughs> You've heard of that guy. <laughs> no, seriously. Donnie was, I think he was a year older or two years older than me. But we went to high school together. Oh, that's But crazy. he was always, like, I was the writer, and he was, like, the guy, like, he he bought like the first Mantec frame, okay. and he put the Suzuki motor in, it and he immediately modified it. And I was like, "Dude, I want to go ride and race." And he was like in the shop in his garage, his mom and dad's garage, working on the bike. Right? Huh. That was Donnie. Wow. And to this day, isn't that funny? Are you guys good friends still? I I wouldn't say good friends, but if I see him, like every two or three years, it's like we hug each other and yeah, I love him. I've seen the pictures. I don't know if it was high school age, but he had like long hair. I mean, he was the full hippie. He was looking. different. Yeah. But he was like a genius. Yeah. Like those guys are, they're yeah. geniuses. Yeah. Like he had the creativity to imagine what motorcycles could be. Right. Right. What, uh, what pro guys were you looking up to locally and also abroad? One more time. Like which pro riders were you looking up to? Torsten Holm. Torsten was So and Roger, Roger DeCoster. So Roger was the man even back then. Mm. But Torsten, what happened for me is I already knew in my heart I wanted to be more than a motorcycle racer. You know, I, 
And when I found out that Torsten was an engineer and he ran businesses and it was like an inspiration to me. And years later, I went back to school and got, you know, multiple degrees and I'm still going to school. Yeah. And it was because of Torsten, for sure. Really? So he inspired you in, in more ways than one? Way more. Way That's more. interesting. And in 2015, so that's seven years ago, my wife and I got to sit with he and Anka in Stockholm, Sweden, in the Grand Hotel at the Smorgasbord, and I got to tell him that. Is that right? I got to tell him that. That's pretty neat. That was a cool. Uh, how much you impacted my life. <laughs> that's pretty cool. Torsten Holman. <laughs> you know, they say don't ever meet your heroes because a lot of times oh, they'll let you down, you know. But you never let me down. I think that in, it's not always true, but in our sport, I would say more times than not, your heroes are everything you thought. Would you agree? More than. Yeah. Well, okay. More than. That's cool. That's, there's a lot of things that are neat about our sport, but that's, that's something that shouldn't be more than. forgotten. Um, okay, so you cut your teeth racing pretty young, sounds like. Uh, transitioned into moto. Who was, who was helping you the most? Did you have a sponsor? Did you have, was there like a, was it your dad? Did you have a mechanic that was kind of, mm. or was it just sort of a, a collection of people? I think that's a great question because I hope it's an inspiration for young people is, um, you know, I've read a few books and, you know, seen a few videos about great people. And what they always say is, find someone else who's doing what you want to do and that's really good at it and do what they do. Hmm. So like, yeah. if you want to invest, find a great investor and study them and learn how to invest. And uh, if you want to be a great motocross rider, who's the top rider? And what do they do? How do they train? How do they prepare their body? What nutrition do they have? You know, because it's way more complicated than yeah. it used to be in the old days, right? Yeah. To be successful at any, anything, it's multiple layers mm -hmm. you have to do everything but i think that's a key and so i didn't have a one person besides torsten and along the way rolf tiblian who was three-time world champion swedish man yep. lives in sri lanka now but i was lucky enough to be uh, uh blessed to have those guys in my lives but i looked out there always in everything i did and tried to find someone that's really good at something and then Emulate them. Yep. I think that's the word. Emulate. It's absolutely the right word. Sense? No, even as a racer, I did that. I'd go, if I, there was, I went to a track and there was somebody faster, I'd jump <coughs> on behind them and just, I'm staring at them, watching them, trying to figure out how are they doing this? Where, where do they break? And they'd eventually pull away from me and I'd yeah. cut back and get behind them again and you're just trying to learn. Yeah. Um, and I figured as long as I didn't ever cut in front of them and piss them off, then they shouldn't get too mad that I'm just trying to follow them. It's a compliment of anything. And I, I showed, I won't go way into it because it's not about this program, but I showed horses competitively for 20 years mm. at the national level. And in the beginning, I did the same thing. I watched and I, I saw guys, they would look at me like, why are you staring at me? Almost like I was a stalker, <laughs> but I wasn't a stalker. I was just trying to like- Were you in a tree outside their house window? <laughs> no. Oh, okay. No, no, at the horse show, but I was like <laughs> watching intently. Yeah. What are they doing? And why do they do what they do? And how does it make them successful? And I, I feel like, and just the things that I've read about you and what I've heard, I, I feel like that's maybe a big key to your success was you're a sponge. You are always learning. Trying. And, and not, 
you didn't get pigeonholed into just one thing. It was like, well, I like that, but I also want to know about this, and I want to know this angle of it. I want to know how it works back here, and you know, it's worked out for you. And I think that's a that's an incredible character trait. Well, and I hope that others, you know, younger people. I'm still going to school. I'm a executive scholar at Kellogg at Northwestern in Chicago. I go to school mm. every year. I go to school. I'm trying to learn, right? I'm 68. I'm trying to learn. Yeah. But I hope I never stop. Yeah. And I hope young people never don't quit school. Like if you quit for a while and work, then find something else to learn from. And yeah. it's not only school, right? You can learn from guys like you. Look at guys that are successful and say, how did they become mm -hmm. successful? And try to emulate that. Yeah, ask them questions, hang around them yeah. a little bit. Yeah, that's that's the way you that's the way you learn. Uh, I read something where there was you remembered this specific date and year, and I thought this was really interesting. Fourth of July, nineteen sixty-seven. You were at a race at Saddleback, and you watched Torsten Holman race. Was that the first time you'd ever seen him in person? Yes. And that impacted you. Oh. And Donnie Emler was there with me, and it was a Wednesday. The 4th of July that year happened to be on a Wednesday. <laughs> Seriously. Yeah. And Torsten yeah. raced in Belgium or something the week before. And he had another race in England, I think, the, the week after. So Wednesday, he's there in Saddleback Park. And we went there. And oh, it was magical. Yeah. Like, what I saw changed my life. What what are the like some of those little reels that are in your head? What, what stands out? What do you remember? Uh, like any moments like David was talking about where you see him do something, you just go, "Well, wow!" They 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 back then there was still the the saddleback or not still that was the saddleback whatever they called it the hill yep the start yep and they disappeared in the back and bonsai hill coming back or yeah whatever. okay well I didn't see that they I don't think they had bonsai then okay so went somewhere in the back and I'm waiting and waiting and waiting. And then around they come, and it's Torsten by himself. And he was like, it looked like he was going slow. He was floating. He was floating over the ground. And like, it seemed like 20 seconds later, Preston Petty came along. Okay. Remember Preston oh, yeah. Petty Fenders? Yeah. And he's gone now, I miss him. Mm -hmm. But he came along, and he was one of the top Americans at the time. And he looked like he was going to crash any second. <laughs> he was just like, wide open, like doing tank slappers, trying to keep up to Torsten. And Torsten was smooth and flowing. And it was like that moment, it's like you can go fast on a motorcycle and look like you're going slow. Mm. It was a, it was monumental. And uh, from that day on, I tried to emulate that where when I would practice, I would go really fast for three corners and then be smooth mm -hmm. and then really fast and be smooth and try to combine that. Find that, became, that blend. That yeah. combined, that created my style. Wow. With that moment though, like I could see that now, like a video mm -hmm. and uh, Torsten was, he was like, oh. Really smooth. That's, huh? so cool. That's awesome. I, I, um, <laughs> I have, you know, we all have a few of those, right? I mean, right. I, I remember seeing, uh, Phoenix Supercross in 86 and those and, and the track was ridiculous. They were using truck trailer beds to make jumps, you know, but some of the stuff from Wardy and RJ that night, I'll never, I'll never forget. Yeah, I have a snapshot and yeah, it's just burned in. I love those, you know, <laughs> core memories, I guess, you know, adult core memories. Anyway, um, you became a top prospect on a CZ. You were racing CZs here. 
and then Edison put you on a People hot seat. People are going, what's a CZ, right? Well, but in our, the day, our crowd is pretty In the day, it was one of the big brands. Yeah. Right? Yep. So I just walk in. Um, <coughs> by 1970, they sent you to Sweden. Um, take me through a little bit more of that because, you know, even when Brad was on and he was telling us about going over to Czechoslovakia. Right. I'm thinking 17 and you're over there and he's drinking beer and eating pickles for breakfast with these yeah. guys. Like, I just cannot imagine, especially <laughs> in that time, this, it wasn't the friendly, easy to get no. around EU that it is no. today. No. Another time and place. And I just think going over there at 16. It was gnarly. Yeah. And uh, one memory that comes to mind, to be honest, is so all the guys in the club, I was in the club, which was called Ikfur Motor Club. And it was... Gunnar Lindstrom, if you've ever heard of him. That's Gunnar Gasser. Lars Lindstrom's father, who yeah. is now the factory Honda team manager. Gunnar, Gunnar Gasser, right? Yeah, yeah. So I was in the club where he grew up. So I, I lived in the town where he grew up. Okay. And uh, the guys were all older than me, and they took me out to, you know, at night, and we'd train in the day. Then we had some beers, and they gave me snuff. <laughs> at 16, at you're at 16. beers, yeah. I'm yeah. not supposed to have beers, yeah. but they gave me snuff. And I put it in this stuff, you know what yeah. it's And I got so sick, right? <laughs> the world was spinning, my world was spinning. But I learned so much from those guys. And uh, you know, it was like Edison said, bring it back to America. Mm-hmm. Not snuff and beer, <laughs> but teach people what you learn right, right, right. about the sport. And, uh, but uh, not that much later, maybe one year later, I was trying to race in like Czechoslovakia in Eastern, uh, I raced in Apolda, where Kenny Roxon is from. Oh, is that in right? Eastern Germany. Oh, yeah. wow. When I was 17. Okay. And trying to get through the border at that time was two to three hour procedure. And kind of, I mean, at least what I've seen, kind of scary, right? Like It was really scary. Machine military, guns. Military, machine guys guns. Guys It's yeah. true. Yeah. It's true. Yeah, it wasn't the, just getting country to country was difficult. It you wasn't, it wasn't the way it is today. Card, a carnet that was like 100 pages that documented your motorcycle, where it was from, and yeah. to get across the border. I know that sounds crazy. And we had, we had, uh, we had, I had like a leather purse, which had like multiple uh, pockets in it with all the different currency. Mm-hmm. So we had oh, British yeah. pounds. Yeah, and, that's another thing, the money. You know, we had all the money. There was no euro or dollar or whatever. Yeah, you're changing language. Franks so language, for this, for that. Yeah. Money, culture borders it was different yeah it was hard that's crazy it was I, great though. i just think for a 16 year old oh absolutely oh. if you made it out alive which which you did <laughs> thank god i thought this was really neat you got tapped to go to the 1970 motocross donations was this the first american team to it ever was. go it was the first so, so yeah so take take me through that and no, who was with it you was there. fun so it was 16 i'm in sweden i turned 17 i come home i'm in hawthorne Edison calls me up and says, Mark, I want you to go back to Sweden. Just like, dude, I just got home. Like literally, you know, phones back in the, you know, not cell phones, but landlines. And he goes, I want you to be on the first motocross donations team. I think it was trophy donations actually, because it was 250 Mm -hmm. back then. And I went to Sweden again, weeks after, you know, get my passport, blah, blah, blah. And it was me, Bob Grassi, and a guy, nobody, from Michigan called Dick Robbins, and his family was a big Husky dealer. Okay. And so Edison needed, like, I want a team. I want to, and he told us, he said, don't worry about how you do, just learn, mm. like learn. 
And thank God he said that because we were disgustingly bad. Yeah. We were fucking bad. Like the it was raining <laughs> and the Swedish guys were wheeling up the hill and the Belgians and and we were like sliding down the hill. That's yeah, well, especially we mud. We were bad. We were like mm. bad sliding down the hill and they were wheeling up the hill and we did didn't get it. It was terrible. What did what did you pick up? And you know, they're they've always been a little better in the mud than us. They race in those conditions more, I would yeah. say. So and then you put it in the context of that era. They were already better than us. So yeah. I'm sure it was a big gap. But what did you guys pick up from that weekend? What I did is I said, when I go back home, I'm going to go to Northern California where it rains and learn how to ride in the mud. Seriously. I know that yeah. sounds stupid, but like I was a Southern California guy and it never rained. So I went up and stayed at the Grassi's house and rode in the mud Yeah, and rode with Brad. And that's where I met Brad and okay. tried to learn how to ride in the mud. No, it's not stupid. I grew up in Arizona and here, Southern California, there is there is no mud, mud in Arizona. It's either dry sand or wet sand. <laughs> down. And then here, if it's muddy, we just don't ride. Oh, it'll be sunny tomorrow. Uh, that doesn't teach you how to ride the mud. Though. So that's interesting to me. Um, okay, and then another thing that I think I didn't know, um, you won the Daytona Supercross. It was actually a motocross back then. Yeah. Um, 19, was it 1970 or 71? 72. 72. So 50 years ago. Yeah, How just, about that? Take me through that event. And who are, who are you racing with? And, yeah, so, and was it, it was the first one, if I recall right, that was actually where the track is today on the infield. Yeah, totally. Okay. So in those days, <clears throat> the Florida Winter AMA was a really big series that everyone went to to get ready for the rest of the year. And uh, it was like an eight race, eight race series, I think. Mm -hmm. And a guy called Jim West, or Bill West, put it on. And uh, it was big, really big. Everyone went there. And it was eight different races. And the last one was Daytona. Mm. And so 1972, like six months later, was the first real Supercross that Mike Goodwin put on at the LA Coliseum. Coliseum. But before that, the idea was already coming to fruition with different people. And they thought, like, what if we did it in a stadium where people could see the whole track because right outdoor motocross that's the downfall that's an of issue, it. yeah right? so with tv cameras that changes but without it it's like they go in the back like i described yeah torsten went in the back and i didn't see him and then he showed up and uh um so at daytona they were already creating a track right in front of the grandstands and so the the people weren't around the track they were up in the grandstands and I got a bad start in the main and killed the engine and I went to the back of the pack. So I was working my way up and I had won like six of the seven races prior mm -hmm. to that. I was like really on fire then. I was, it was like, I remember thinking, like I'd ride up next to you and I'd go, dude, like do you have two flat tires? Let's fucking race. Like I wanted to like race <laughs> yeah. and everyone was going so slow. Yeah. But it's when you're on top of your game, right? Yeah. It's easy. It's coming easy to you. It's coming easy. Yeah. And so I caught up then I killed the engine, went to the back of the pack, and then I caught Gary Jones, who was my nemesis then. Gary and yep. his brother Dwayne, the Yamaha team. And I, there was like a ditch that they had dug, and I jumped over the ditch and passed him, and the crowd roared. And when they roared, I'd never heard that before. I didn't know, like it almost knocked me off the bike. I was so like, whoa. Startled, yeah. It was startled. You know, nowadays we know that all the time, right, yeah. in stadiums. But it was it was super cool, and then, then, you know, whatever it was, four or five months later, I was in Europe, 
And that's when Marty Tripes won the Super Bowl in motocross mm. that summer. That was the, the real the first official one. start, the official. So is your name on the Daytona Trophy down there? Should be. Yeah. I don't know. I haven't that's, seen it, but it should I mean, be. like, that's... Oh, yeah. That's an honor. <laughs> that's a really... I, to me, that's a very big thing. Uh, um, I'll never forget it. It was yeah. fun. Huh. And a lot of similarities, even still, the dirt and the way they oh, build it, right? Very similar. Okay, so let's let's back up a little bit then. 1971, take us through that season. You won the 500 championship, which uh, is, looked a little different than the way it does today, but... Yeah, this was early motocross here. Yeah, um, so, so they were. They there. were. That's a great question. <clears throat> the AMA was trying to figure it out, and they were taking it over from the FIM, and it was the fall winter AMA series, which later became the Trans AMA. And uh, the last race was at Saddleback Park, and we started, I think, in Boise, Idaho. Hmm. And my bike. At OMC. At the OMC, uh, Owahi Motorcycle Club, was it I that think track? It, I think it's the same track. That's been around forever. Where they have the vintage days. Yes. Scott Wallenberg yep. puts that on. Yep. Yeah, same track. Okay, wow. And uh, I remember I was going down a big hill and my crank seized, my rod broke. But anyway, so I was back at the last race at Saddleback Park and I had a 17-point lead, I thought, over Brad Lackey. Okay. And I had a, a new Bassani downpipe on my Husky which was pretty cool. Yeah. And uh, on maybe five laps to go, the Bassani pipe broke ah. and the bike started losing power. And uh, we were trying to develop it for him. And then um, I got a flat front tire. And so I was struggling, like trying It's your, get... your nightmare coming to nightmare. life. <laughs> but but the guys were flagging me because we had a plan with the Husky okay. guys. And by then, I was important enough that the Husky team, a guy called Carl Berggren, who ran Torsten Holman in the East, he was flagging me in, or signboarding. Okay. You're okay, you got 17 point lead. But at the end, we thought I won the championship over Brad by 17 points. And the next morning, the guy called me, the head of AMA Racing at the time. He goes, Mark, you still won, but you only won by one point. We made a mistake and we missed, we miscalculated the points. Oh my gosh. <laughs> Wow. And it was there's so many people there, you know, at Saddleback. Yeah. And I was the champion and I got the jacket and I got the number one plate. And were you and Brad thing. friends at that point? Yeah, I, I would okay. say so. We Ish. were competitors, yeah. but, but we're dear friends and I love him. Yeah. You know, I love him. So, Lori. Huh. Yeah. Oh, it's kind of fun. So, right. was there any races from that, that series that stand out for you, good or bad? or? Yeah, I think that was the biggest that one saddleback because yeah. it was so important and it was yeah. you know as it is today still the epicenter of motocross in mm -hmm. America's right SoCal. Yep. And you know we were at Unadilla, right? In Unadilla, there's fans everywhere, and you're at St. Louis where the Munganas family is so big with their auto dealerships, and Ray, his dad David was a you know he's an AMA Hall of Fame. Mm -hmm. David Munganas, mm -hmm. they own all these car dealerships and he was a legend in the sport of motorcycling. He is a legend in the, in the AMA Hall of Fame. So there's like different places around the country you go and where the sport is very vibrant. Mm -hmm. But SoCal is still, it's the episode. Everybody's here, yeah, for now. <laughs> we'll see if that's... We'll see if they drive us out, right? <laughs> They're trying their best. They're trying. Um, so anything else from that 71 season? You won the championship here. 
Uh, and then it was 72, though, that you went and did some racing in Europe. That's when you had your injury. Yeah. Right? Yeah. So the... the and was that know, at the start of the 72? Like, did that GP series start, like, in February, like it does now? Or early in the year? Well, we were in Daytona. That's where I won Daytona. Okay. And then I came home from Daytona. And I raced in the Mint 400 with Malcolm Smith. Oh, yeah. I've got that on here. I want to ask you and about. And we won. We won. I was leading the race overall on a 250. And I, I freaking hit a, a rock that I never saw. Went end over and knocked myself out. Wide open fifth gear. So 75. Knocked myself out. Woke up. Got on the bike. The rear fender was bent down and touching the rear tire. Pulled into the pits. And Malcolm is so clever. He told the guys just saw the loop off the husky loop. It had like a metal loop. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. Well, it had a loop with the aluminum yeah. center. Saw it off, and then he jumped on, and, and I was still out, like knocked out. And I was like, and he's like looked at me like, fuck, you know. And he took off, and because it was eight loops, and oh, he geez. went out on the second loop. You know, this we was were, on the very first loop. You got knocked out. I I did. I was leading oh. by a long ways. On, and I got knocked out. A guy in an airplane told me after what I, what happened. So Malcolm took off, and we worked our, bay, our way back up, and we won the 250 class. We were fourth overall. And then next week, I went to Europe to okay. start the 72 GP series. Okay. And uh, Can I just say how cool it is you got to race with, Mal with Malcolm? <sighs> you know, another He's just... He's a legend. Yeah, it's crazy. Legend. And, like, the fact that he picked me like some motocross guy, like in those yeah. days, like he was alleged, J.N. Roberts and all these desert yeah. racers and Baja guys. Like Malcolm was like, Mark, I want you to ride with me. And I was like, really? Am I worthy? <laughs> That's pretty, I mean, it's really cool. <laughs> it was fun. It was fun. Mm. So you go to Europe, um, <clears throat> take me through that season. Cause it was the end of the, uh, Luxembourg was the end of the year. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. When I got my, so take my me through injury. that season. Out. So the first race was Sittendorf, Austria, and it was muddy, just like I described. And so I knew more about how to ride in the mud, but Roger was wheeling uphill on the, that's when Suzuki was coming on. Mm. So Ole Pedersen had raced Suzuki for a year or two to develop the bikes. And then they hired Roger, uh, Joel Robert, Roger and, Sylvain Gabors. That's a, right? that's a pretty solid team. <laughs> and they were like, kill and yeah. Roger's like wheeling up the steep hill in the yeah. mud, like, and I'm like still sliding backwards going, how do you do that? Right. Jeez. So uh -huh. I raced the whole series. Uh, Where were you finishing? 10th, mid-pack? Like, no, back of the pack. Okay. The Americans then, Americans, we, we, were, we were just trying to stay on the same lap. Mm. And so I was back of the pack. And the last race, which was in Austria, no, in Luxembourg, and I was, it was muddy again, and I took all my tear-offs off, took my goggles off, and was going, and I got a really good start, and I was in the top 10, and which was like, that was the goal then, is just get a point, yeah. get a GP point mm -hmm. for America. Top 20, they point Top for? 10. Oh, only top 10. Top 10. Top, top 10. So okay, I was so like trying tough. to get a point, yeah. and I was like, I was like seventh or eighth. And it was like, we can do this, you know? And I took my goggles off and I came over the top of the hill and a rock hit me in the eye, like boom. And I thought it was a gun because the, um, the military were doing crowd control. Mm. They all had guns 
And I didn't think someone shot me in the eye intentionally, but I thought it was a mistake or a gun went off. But that's the, the that's what impact. Because it, it just, boom. Oh. And I couldn't see, and my eye filled with blood. And so I rode you know, another lap and rode back to the pits and went to the hospital and blah, blah, blah. And that was kind of the beginning of the end of my career. Okay. Even though I raced a few years later and won some races, I, I couldn't see because I had one eye. Mm -hmm. So I had no depth. So that, it was bleeding internally, right? Creating yeah. intraocular pressure and... And you lost the vision completely? I lost the vision completely, yeah. Still to this day? No, I have about 80% back. Okay. Yeah, well, so I got back yeah, and recovered. Yeah. Painful, huh? <laughs> I gotta imagine. Um, so, you know, it's funny. I, as I, I was reading through some of that story and I thought, you know, you always hear, don't ever take your goggles off. You, you <laughs> get hit in the eye. But I didn't never meet anyone this time that happened. No, you when, when, you, when you have an eye injury and then you go to the eye doctor or the hospital, there's like 20 people there who like said the same thing. They said, well, I was just gonna like machine something in the machine shop, right? I was I just gonna- I didn't need the safety glasses. I didn't glasses. need the safety glasses. Yeah. Boom, and they're all there. Mm -hmm. And then you realize it's, it happens. Mm -hmm. so. I, I get really scared when I see guys pull their goggles off mid-race and I just think, Yeah, there's no do just, Pull in, get some new guy. I don't know. It's hard because we've all yeah. been in that position where, okay, totally. well, I can't see, and you try to wipe it, and you can't see. Yeah. So I'm either going to crash because I can't see, or I got to pull him. And so years later, when I did product development for Scott, you know, I worked on the tear offs and I worked on the pull roll, -offs roll offs and yeah. all that stuff, mm -hmm. you know, because of that. Yeah. It was motivation. Passion for you. Totally. Yeah, at that point. Yeah. So, um, all right. Geez. So you, you, um, you come back, you've already got the, you know, your, your vision's bad, but you continued to race. Mm -hmm. um, and you said you started crashing a lot. Yeah. Uh, obviously, you know, you can't gauge depth and- Depth perception, yeah. It's pretty big when you're doing 60 on a bike trying to <laughs> navigate ruts and bumps. Um, so were those years frustrating for you then, really I gotta tough. believe? And yeah. I didn't know, I mean, and you know, you ask about, like there was Torsten Holman and Rolf Tablin, and, but in that, period there was nobody like nobody that I, I didn't my dad didn't know you know I had no friends that knew I didn't have a mentor so as I think of it now having a mentor then would have been incredibly mm. powerful and that's how I spend a lot of my time nowadays is trying to mentor young people mm. but I, I was missing guidance and because so you, were, you were one of the best riders in the sport, so there's no one and else. I was to... lost, mm. and nobody wanted to talk to me. And mm. you know, and Husky was kind of like down on me, like what happened to our champion. And I'm not blaming them. No, no, I'm no. Just right. saying the reality of yeah. there was no one to go to, no one to turn to. And uh, nowadays, I realize, and as I said, that's how I spend a lot of my time is mentoring and coaching and. Uh, that's really important. If you're in Absolutely. trouble, right? What do you do? Pray to God. But, you know, if you can find a mentor, mm -hmm. like we said earlier, if you find someone that's really good at what you're doing. And the other part of racing is racing is really hard to leave. Like it's in your blood, yeah. right? It's like Brian Dungy. Brian's going to race Saturday again, right? It's hard when you've been eight time champion to quit the sport and not come back. There's there's a passion in you and a drive that makes you want to come back. And it's hard. And you and I chatted a little bit about this earlier, about making, when you, when you do decide from, to quit racing or retire from racing, and Ryan Hughes has a saying that, that I 
it stuck with me. And he says, motocross racers have two deaths when they quit racing and then when they actually die physically. And that they're, they're both equally as terrible, right? Like if you don't have something to transition you out of racing and, and redirect to me, all of the things that you learn in motocross, all of the things you need to be successful, if you just take those same principles and apply them to anything, you can be successful. It teaches you everything I you need, agree with you. but you've got to find that passion. What, what's the next thing? And I see a guy like Dungey, who I absolutely love. I love I, he's Ryan. just the best I love dude. Ryan. Love him. But you can see, because he's gone from doing coffee to doing you know, a coaching thing to doing, owning some team to, you can see he's, he hasn't he found that it. next passion. He passion. Yeah. So I obviously, I'm wishing the best for him, but I'm a little, Me too. a little nervous and I feel like, man, he had such an incredible career. He walked away healthy and wealthy, you know? So, um, I'm right with you. That, but... that transition's difficult. It's hard though, right? It's in our blood. Yeah. It's in our blood. And I think you, said it very well. It's like, can we find something else where we can rechannel that energy mm -hmm. into that and get the same benefit? And for me, it was business. It's so like, so how, tell me how that went. So you, you continued to race all the way through 75 and lots of, lots of crashes, results you weren't happy with. What was the, the final straw where you said, all right, I got to call it. And, and how tough was that for you? Yeah. Great question. So I think, um, what happened is I, in those days, <clears throat> it's not like today where you have, like you fly to the races and you have the truck and the trailer and the, you know, semi and the mechanics and the trainer and the psychologist and the <laughs> business manager. Like it was me, yeah, yeah like yeah. me. Like I drove my car to the racetrack with my trailer and my motorcycle in the back and I worked on my, you know, and if I was lucky enough, Torsten would come by and give me a word or, yeah. or Rolf. It was very different. But I think that um, in those days, as I was doing that, which in retrospect were a blessing, it was like college for mm -hmm. me. It was college. Flying around Europe or traveling around Europe and doing all that shit and languages and currency and cultures. And it was a One experience. Absolutely. Unbelievable. Yeah. Kid from... SoCal, 16-year-old, 17-year-old kid. Great experience. But what happened is I became really hungry for more. I became, I wanted to learn about business. Mm. And at first I used to poo-poo business, business, you know, negative. But then I started to get curious about it. And so when I ultimately stopped racing and did product development and, and taught motocross schools, I started to go back to college at night you know, Saddleback College, like mm -hmm. right up the road and taking classes. And it took me 10 years, but I got a business degree finally, 10 years. And uh, I think it was that, and I'll go back to Torsten. When I learned that he was an engineer, it made me think bigger. Mm -hmm. I wanna be more than a motorcycle racer mm -hmm. from Southern California. I wanna be more. So it was a kind of, I'm type A guy, right? I can't help myself. It's like, I want to do more. I want to do more. Like, I want to be a business guy. So better go back to school and learn about business. Mm. And that's what I did. Did you learn? Do you feel like you learned a lot of things in college that you couldn't have learned out in the real world? Like I found Elon Musk said something recently where, you know, college has certainly changed. Yeah. Um, but he says, 
his take is you, you don't need college anymore. You can find everything you need to learn is online. I think you can. And and you're better off, essentially, I'm paraphrasing, but you're essentially better off finding someone to mentor you and go dive directly into what it is well, you're passionate about. If he would be my mentor and your mentor, <laughs> yeah, yeah. we wouldn't need yeah, college. Right. That's yeah, a right. good point. No, but I think it's true. I think that um, the world has changed. But if you go back to me in those days in the 70s, I think my takeaway was it gave me confidence. Mm -hmm. And then I got my bachelor's degree and it took 10 freaking years because mm -hmm. I was flying to the races. I was a race team manager and I was like gone all the time and I kept having to drop classes. So it took 10 years. And then I went straight in my MBA program and I was in the top program at Pepperdine, the presidential wow. key executive program. And I was like sitting in there and I was like super like a little baby boy like <laughs> when I went in. And I, I looked around and I thought, fuck, I'm as smart as all these guys. Like, I'm not that yeah. smart, but like, I can do this. But neither are they. It yeah. gave me confidence. Mm. So if you said, what does college do for you? I think it gives you a construct to think about things and teaches you discipline of how to like get through the work, do the assignments and, mm -hmm. and, it, and then you realize I can do this. Yeah. I yeah. think that's it. It's a, and like so that. Elon is smart enough. He knew all that, right? He didn't, and, and you know, like Stephen Jobs, like Stephen Jobs, the, all those guys quit college, like mm -hmm. after a week and a half or whatever, they're like, fuck. Yeah, I'm right? not learning any, anything here, I'm out. They're geniuses yeah. though. But a lot of us are not, I'm not a genius. Like my IQ is like, okay. But um, I, it gave me the confidence. Mm. And I think the other thing, I'm reading a book right now that's amazing about uh, leadership in crisis and it's Abraham Lincoln and Teddy Roosevelt and uh, his bro his uncle and uh, but it's w what I realize as I read through it is it's not just intellect it's personality mm. and interpersonal skills yeah. some people have super high intellect very low interpersonal skills and if you have like a little bit of both it will do you well. Yeah. It will serve you well. That's the thing about college I've really seen where friends of mine have blossomed is that interpersonal, being able to interact with people where maybe they went in a little shy or a little insecure. Maybe that's a lack of confidence. But by the time you're done, uh, you know, a lot of my friends, I, it's, I enjoy people that I can take them into a room, people, people they don't know, and they're friends with everybody by the time we leave. You know, I just think that that's a very rare skill. It is. And something that probably college does does teach you inadvertently. In yeah, well said, very well said. Um, okay, so what what did you do? Do you went to work for Suzuki as their team manager once you quit? Right, that was your first step uh, out. My, my first job was I actually taught a motocross school. I put together At Carlsbad, right? I yeah, I okay. put that together. So the first job was like put together and teach the motocross school. Okay, and, and then, you were working with um, somebody, right? Wasn't or did you hand that off to somebody? Eventually, okay. In the beginning, I did it myself. Okay. Uh, me from scratch. And then uh, a couple guys like Wayne Boyer or guys like that that I handed that off to because I had taken over the Suzuki race team, which at the time was like trash, mm. and built it up and we started winning. And then the Suzuki, it's hard to, it's hard to say now, with all due respect, I love the brand, but like Suzuki was really, really strong and successful back in those days and today it's a shadow of its former self and it breaks my heart because I worked there yeah. for 12 years in total in two parts and helped build it up and it's 
it's kind of sad. To well, me. as a little side side note here, rabbit hole. But what what the hell happened to them? Can you can you shed any light onto what's gone wrong? I mean, is it? I, I can't get my brain around the decisions they make. You just won a MotoGP title within the last few years, and now you're pulling out of that? Yeah. Like, that's the one aspect of racing yeah. you're having a lot of success yeah. at the moment. How does that make sense to anybody? Yeah. I don't know the answer, but I think, the, I think it's lack of leadership. Whenever they had strong leaders, Suzuki was successful. Mm. And I think today, with all due respect, not trashing anyone, but I think there's a lack of leadership. And uh, is that from the from the Japan I side? Think from Japan, yeah. Mm. I mean, you know, just when I was running American Suzuki, we had 15% motorcycle market share and 20% on side by sides or ATVs. Mm -hmm. It's three oh, percent or two percent. Mm. Fifteen and twenty. We were market leaders. We introduced four wheelers. And so I think it's, uh, in Japan, it's a very different system. And it's hard for a leader to break out. But whenever a leader breaks out, like Mr. Honda did at Honda and created Honda, he was a leader. Mm -hmm. And his legacy lives on. And every now and then there's strong leaders. But when there's not strong leaders, it's kind of a committee. And I don't think committees do well. I think does, does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, correct me if I'm wrong too, but is there a, a correlation to those leaders, whoever's in charge, whether they have a passion for racing or not? Yes. Because Sekiro Su yes. Honda in the '80s, all the money that he committed to that, which was obscene, they were never going to collect that back. No. But he said, "I don't give a shit. I want to go win. Do what it takes." Totally. Um, that's why we saw that juggernaut that Honda was in the '80s. Totally. Um, and you see. Kind of now you see KTM doing Who that, you, yeah. you know. I mean, you, you see these teams at different times. Totally. Star Yamaha is maybe getting That's, into that now. I'd but. love to talk to you more about that because they're on the gas right now. Yeah. It's very impressive. You know, getting Ricky's uh, facility and, you know, what I don't really understand it completely, but I'm a student of it. I want to learn because they're, you know, I'm a KTM guy and they're giving us a big run for the money. Yeah. Right? So, but yeah. I think it's, it's, I think the answer is, leadership, mm -hmm. when there's great leadership, and back to your point, passion for racing. Mm -hmm. Because, right, everything emanates from that. Like, you know, the technology, the drive, the passion, like everything emanates from that. And like when I was, so you won't remember this, but you might, but in 19, I don't know, 79 or 80, I was in Japan on Christmas Eve and we were building the next year's super bikes, or uh, supercross bikes. Okay. And Mr. Yoko Uchi sat in chair. He was the head of engineering at the time. Sat in a freaking lawn chair, like a $12 lawn chair like this, till 11 o'clock at night. And all it was was a signal, like you give these guys anything they want. Like Blackwell's here, Kent Howerton's here, Mark Barnett's here. You give them anything they want. Mm. And we were sawing frames and changing <laughs> steering head angles. I'm not shitting you. Mm. We were freaking changing steering head angles, milling new triple clamps, porting cylinders, welding pipes, mm. running them on the dyno till midnight. And he sat in the chair, like do right. whatever they say. And this is the boss. This is the boss, man. And like the number two 
in the whole thing. Like he wasn't the president, right. but he was the head of engineering and it's an engineering company. And we came back, we built, you won't know this, but we built special bikes for Supercross mm -hmm. in 1980. So we had bikes that had shorter wheelbase, steeper steering hand angles, uh, different power curves. And we went out and we won fricking every heat and every final in the Supercross series that year, 1980. Mm. Kent and uh, Mark and uh, right before Brian Myerskoff came on. Okay. It was Kent and Mark mainly. But I mean, that's leadership, right? Mm -hmm. It's like he knew I was a leader and he was told, give him whatever he wants and he sat in the chair. And I think when you look at over the years, you know, the companies in Japan, when they're run by committees, I don't think they do so well. Well, I gotta I got believe the committees are like, not to use a, a term that's gonna you know, offend anybody, but they're kind of like bean counters. They're just looking at numbers and well, you know, we're not making enough there. Let's never, let's focus our effort over here. And it's like, well, look where Suzuki's at now. I mean, yeah. they're, they're well, on you the brink of risk. I yeah. think the end of the day, it's you have to be willing to take a risk. Mm. And if no one's willing to take a risk, yeah. And I'm not disparaging. No, listen. I'm just saying it makes me because I worked there two 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 parts, twelve years total. Like I seven days a week. I put my heart yeah. and soul into that brand, and now I see what is left. Do you think we'll see? Will they go away? Is that a is that a real possibility? No, they won't go away. It's a big Japanese company that's strong in Asia and India and has partnerships all over the world. But I don't know what's happening. Maybe they're just avoiding the North American market in terms of putting serious resources into it. I I don't know. I mm. honestly don't know, and it makes me sad though. Yeah, same. So same. Hey, we're going to take a quick break. This is our Troyly Designs timeout. Um, check out TLD, everything they've got going on. This is a great time of year when you start to see a lot of that new summer gear, the SE5 helmets out. Uh, so check those guys out. Stay tuned. We're going to be right back here to finish up with Mark. Father's Day is just around the corner, and our friends at Manscaped are here to ensure all the father figures out there are looking daddy material this June. Manscaped's Performance Package 4.0, which includes their signature Lawnmower 4.0, is the perfect bundle to tackle any and all old man hair from head to toe. This right here is no dad joke. Treat him and yourself and join the 4 million men worldwide who trust Manscaped with this exclusive offer. Get 20% off plus free shipping with the code WhiskeyThrottle at manscaped.com. Trust me, his dad bod will thank you. Manscaped is designed with fathers in mind and Performance Package 4.0 is here in just in time for Pops' special day. Inside this package, you'll find their Lawnmower 4.0 trimmer, Weed Whacker ear, nose, and hair trimmer, Crop Preserver ball deodorant, Crop Reviver toner, Performance boxer briefs, and a travel bag to hold his goodies. First off, let me start by saying the Lawnmower 4.0 will be the official MVP of Father's Day. Their fourth generation trimmer features a cutting edge ceramic blade to reduce grooming accidents, thanks to their advanced skin safe technology. The Lawnmower 4.0 is waterproof, and has a 400K LED spotlight he needs for a more precise shave. Does your dad use the same trimmer for his body and face? Let's throw that out the window and give him the upgrade he deserves. But wait, there's more. Manscaped just launched their brand new Boxers 2.0 that are, dare I say, the best boxers ever? We all know dads love their comfort. With summer just around the corner, the Boxers 2.0 are here to save every father from the uncomfortable heat. These new boxers are packed with revolutionary features, including the jewel pouch. Designed to cradle his boys in their own special space, this right here is a game changer. 
Whether he's mowing the lawn, taking out the trash, or golfing in the sun, these moisture-wicking boxers breathe without breaking a sweat. Dads, buy this for yourself. Sons, buy this for your dad. Ladies, get this for your man. And dog daddies, you deserve this treat too. Get 20% off plus free shipping with the code WhiskeyThrottle at Manscaped.com. That's 20% off plus free shipping at Manscaped.com using the code WhiskeyThrottle. Shake what your mama gave you? Nah, shake what your daddy gave you. Dunlop. There is a reason every AMA championship in the past decade was won on Dunlop tires. They are the best. Choose the best performing tire and a brand that has never wavered in their support of our sport. Choose Dunlop. Pro Circuit. Pro Circuit products are designed with one goal in mind, winning. Through passion and hard work, Pro Circuit has operated the most successful 250 team in the history of the sport. They use that same formula when developing exhaust, engine, and suspension parts for every brand. When only the highest level of performance is acceptable, trust Pro Circuit. Since 2009, Seat Concepts has been dedicated to making the best aftermarket seats. More comfort, more grip, more riding. For 10 years, we've continued to raise the bar. Innovation and American craftsmanship make Seat Concepts the world-leading manufacturer of power sports seats. Something from nothing. That's what Nihilo Concepts is about. It starts with a spark, an idea, a concept, which leads to a design and finishes with engineered excellence with the highest quality products created with durability in mind. All our products are made in the USA at our state-of-the-art facility in Stewart, Florida. Whether you are a weekend warrior, ride for fun, or at the highest level of competition, Nihilo Concepts offers innovative titanium, aluminum, and carbon fiber parts for your dirt bike. We offer a wide variety of products that you can customize to your liking. Browse our site for foot pegs, brake tips, engine components, specialty tools, frame grip tape, lever grips, carbon fiber components, motor stands, our secondary on-switch plus much more. Head to NihiloConcepts.com and see for yourself why factory teams like Red Bull KTM, Rockstar Husqvarna, Troy Lee Designs Gas Gas, Orange Brigade, Club MX, KLM Gas Gas, and some of the fastest riders in the world choose Nihilo Concepts. Since 1987, Coach Rob has been dedicated to creating durable motocross, supercross, GNCC, and road racers through his complete racing solutions program, integrating performance, nutrition, functional strength, flexibility, and mental development. His proven system has world-class results, producing four AMA number one pro plates and over 270 national championships. The complete racing solutions program focuses on the fundamentals of human physiology and how riders interact with the physics of a motorcycle. Its proven process and system helps riders understand the why associated with riding techniques and how getting faster on a motorcycle directly correlates with strength, endurance, nutrition, and flexibility off the bike. There is a difference between a fast racer and a Complete Racing Solutions racer. Visit CompleteRacingSolutions.com and get on the path to becoming the champion you want to be.
Specialized Bicycles. Specialized leads the way in the world of bicycling. Whether it's cross-country racing, downhill, e-bikes, enduro, road, gravel, dual slalom, dirt jumping, or all-mountain bikes that do it all, Specialized has the perfect ride for you. The brand is synonymous with engineering excellence and innovation that steers the industry. Visit your local Specialized dealer for a test ride and see just how good Specialized products are. OGO Power Sports. OGO has perfected the carrying case. Motocross gear bags, helmet bags, boot bags, hydration packs, backpacks, and travel bags, to name a few, have all been meticulously engineered to maximize space and surpass durability standards that would make NASA proud. Simply the best, OGO Power Sports. intercom on. Cool to be able to hear what they talk about and how fast they're going to throttle control braking. Really cool. Extend your leg out. There you go. Good job. Good throttle control, Lonnie. That's a great training tool. It was a lot of fun to be on the track with them. Hey, Lono. What? Can you pull off? Pull off over here when you get to me and your brother. Okay. With a rich history in motocross, ProX has been dedicated to supplying quality components since 1975. Whether you're rebuilding an engine or just need a new chain, ProX Racing Parts aims to bridge the gap between OE quality and affordability. ProX has over 9,000 part numbers and over 60 different product types that are manufactured by highly reputable or even OEM suppliers and are offered at affordable prices to help keep riders on the bike instead of in the garage. Visit ProX.com to search parts for your bike or check them out at your favorite online or local dealer. Audio the guys are just breaking in their race bikes, which will leave on the semi this Saturday to go to the first Supercross for our coast in Orlando. Uh, so the guys are just be goofing off a little bit, do some cool photos, do some cool videos. When you go racing, you want to do well, but a big key is keeping the bikes on the track. That's why we chose to work with Motul. Expectations coming in as a rookie is just to try and get my feet wet and uh, honestly just send it, see where I end up and uh, do my best out there, but just ride aggressive and ride like myself in practice and I uh, should have a good time. Challenges of this sport, I believe, is just simply staying healthy. Uh, with how fast we're going um, and what we're doing, your margin for mistake is really, really small. Stay sick. If you have little rippers, then you have had to have seen Stay Sick Bikes by now. We have created bike and experiences that allow kids to develop sooner and empower them to find their own ride. From learning to ride to sharpening skills, the Stay Sick promise is accelerated growth. Whatever path your family chooses, it's going to be the ride of your life. Stay Sick Stability Cycles. You ever heard the phrase that the harder you work, the luckier you are? Well, at Luck Apparel, they believe in an acronym that kind of sums it up a little more simply than that, laboring under complete knowledge. So it isn't just some random chance that determines what your outcome or results are going to be. It's being educated and working your butt off to get it done. And I think that that goes hand in hand with the motocross industry. You don't get lucky into a win. You work your ass off and you make it happen. So check out Luck Apparel. 
They've got T-shirts, hats, sweatshirts, all kinds of cool stuff. And we're stoked to have them on board here at the Whiskey Throttle Show in 2022. If you're in the market for a toy hauler trailer, car trailer, cargo trailer, look no further than Custom Outfitters. One of our new partners for this year. Uh, these guys do an awesome job, even so far as to dial in the inside of Sprinter vans, which have become the new standard mode of transportation for moto. Uh, these guys can handle it all. Uh, they use ATC world-class trailers, uh, top shelf service and performance in their products. Uh, Custom Outfitters out of South Dakota doing an awesome job. We're stoked to have these guys on board this year. So whether you're looking to just do some camping with the family, uh, looking for a trailer that can fit all your toys to go out to the desert or wherever, uh, look no further than Custom Outfitters. Today's show is brought to you in part by ZDMS, the next generation dealer management system for the power sports industry. Designed for large and multi-rooftop dealership operations, ZDMS Business Intelligence harnesses the power of your data for better line of sight into dealership decision-making. Pinpoint performance areas of concern where profit is being maximized and opportunities remain. Real-time data visualization combined with drill-down reporting means you can track up-to-the-minute dealership performance across all departments. Unlock stories you never knew existed and meaningful insights into your business. With ZDMS's intuitive, easy-to-use dealer management system, you'll streamline your opportunities and improve communication across your entire dealership with efficient workflows while spending less time behind the counter and more time with your customers. ZDMS understands technology is only as good as the team representing it. With ZDMS's unmatched top-tier support, rest assured your customer experience is part of the package. Every team member in your dealership will have access to a support team ready to assist in any way possible. Change is good. Say goodbye to your legacy DMS software and modernize your operations, minimize costs, improve efficiencies, and make data-driven decisions to increase profitability with ZDMS. Demo at ziidms.com today. I'm on vacation every single day because I love my occupation. I'm on vacation. If you don't like your life, then you should go and change it. All right, welcome back, everybody. That was your Troyly Designs timeout. Check them out at TroilyDesigns.com. Follow them on Instagram as well. Some really cool content from the race team and all their new products. Um, jumping back into it, Mark. So I, I guess, and I mentioned this earlier with your motocross school, um, was that Rolf Tiblin's kind of, was it something you picked up and, and ran with from him? Because I thought you guys worked together on that or something. We Am did. I getting that wrong? We did. So okay. good, good, good point. So... Um, you know, motocross school started, as I described earlier, with guys like Torsten Hallman just kind of winging it. And then Rolf had more of a discipline to the Husqvarna, Husqvarna school, which was in Carlsbad. And then when I was asked to take over, not take over, to create the school for Suzuki, I pretty much did follow his blueprint, but then I tried to add to it. So what I added was um, I add, added photography, and videos to show the writing techniques instead of just talking about it or demonstrating it. Mm -hmm. So we had a classroom, mm -hmm. and then I had a, a classroom also for fitness. We did the exercises that would be helpful to the core strength of a motocross rider. And then... Uh, There's a picture Brad sent me of... Uh, um, <laughs> oh, gosh dang it, I'm brain farting on the name, but like one of the legends of that time, on somebody's back, yeah, and they would run with someone on your back. Yeah, get your legs stronger, and but it's core strength anyway, in motocross, yeah, right? Yeah, it's sure. really important. But um, so yeah, did that, and uh, 
tried to bring professionalism. And I'm, I'm pretty proud to say to this day that Roger DeCoster, who's someone I look up to very much, he thinks it was the best school that he's ever seen. Mm. Like here we are, whatever it is, 40, 50 years later. Because wow. I, I tried to bring really discipline and professionalism and all that to the school. And I ran that for four or five years and then I was running the race team for Suzuki and they said, dude, you need to focus on the race team so let's hand it off to your your assistants. So stuff. who did take the race team from you? Uh, no, no, I took the oh, race you, team. You took yeah. the race team. Oh, so gotcha. I, I let the motocross school go to, I think Wayne Boyer at the time was oh, one okay. of the first guys, a guy called Wayne Boyer from down that area. And, uh, and when I took over the, what they did is they asked me to go to the races and just observe and see what you, you know, see what you saw and tell us. And I, what I saw was a train wreck mm. and that was 19, late 77. And it was, there were some good riders, you know, like uh, Tony Stefano and, and, you know, but the results were just terrible. What was going wrong? Just everything, uh, like okay. everything that could be wrong. <laughs> and it was a downward spiral, which is kind of how, you know, um, so the bikes would break and the riders would crash and everyone was negative and mm. it just was a downward spiral. And <clears throat> my first year was hard because everything continued to break and I would literally, like literally take broken wheels and take them and duct tape them and take them to the airport and pay the extra freight to bring them back to California to show like, cause they, they kind of didn't believe us. You know, mm. it was like, look guys, the fucking wheels are broken. Like we need better spokes, we need better rims. And we went to Buchanan and had them make better spokes and rims. And it was like piece by piece yeah. fixing stuff. Mm. Get the bikes to stop braking, get the riders to have more confidence in themselves. And then part of it, I think, I'd like to believe that as a racer who had success, but also failure, because after my eye injury, I struggled. I think that made me a better team manager because I was more empathetic to the riders. I wasn't just this champion guy sure. that said, you're not up to championship standards. Like I could empathize mm -hmm. and figure out what was wrong and what were they struggling with. Could relate a little bit more to. Exactly. Yeah. And then start to build their confidence up. And that really seemed to help. And like, if you remember <clears throat> around that time, Kent Howerton had been national champion and he was down in the dumps and he got let go from Husqvarna and I brought him to Suzuki and I worked on building his confidence up. And mm -hmm. at that time, Bob Hanna was totally dominant. It was like unbeatable. What year was this? So 70, like around 70, 77, 78. Yeah. And Bob Hanna was unbeatable and everyone like sat on the starting line and said, you know, who's going to get second today, right? Mm -hmm. Which is mental defeat, right? And I tried to convince him, you, this guy's not unbeatable. And the first time he beat him, of course, then he got the taste of it and realized he could do it. And mm -hmm. so I think as I look back on my career racing, because I struggled as well as having success, I could understand and empathize with the riders and be a better rider coach, I think. Mm -hmm. And I don't know how much of that there is today, but um, but I think it's important. It's an important aspect. I think it is important. I think that's one of the things that makes uh, team managers, former riders as team managers, successful because they can, they've all had, even if you're a very high level guy, you've had bad days and you know how how that feeling is when your confidence is low or you, you don't trust the bike, you right. don't like the bike. Unless you can relate to that, it, if you're just a guy who's, who you build motors or you just stepped into a management position and, but you never raced at that level. You don't know. 
yeah, you just be like, come on, man, you got everything right. you need. Why aren't you doing it? Yeah. Well, there's nine million puzzle pieces up here that have to come together just <laughs> right, you know, or a basket case. But anyway, um, interesting helped. stuff. So, how many how many years did it take to get that? You guys started winning there. Yeah, it was about a year and a half of just brutal, like no results, and then we started winning. And it's like anything when you start to win, you get the taste for it. And I think the first win was maybe Mark Barnett. I found Mark Barnett. He was an upcoming amateur, and uh, I found him at I don't know. I went up and talked to him, and I said, "I really want you on our team." And you know, he was skeptical and, and stuff, but we got him on the team. And like he started winning. I think he won some races in Florida in the series I told yep. you about before, and then he won the championship, and it was like. The momentum started. Snowballed. Everyone started to believe like the bikes are good enough, and like if Barnett can do it, then I can do it, and mm. and then we were able to start to attract better riders too. And uh, um, I think it was it was, and then we were dominant. Like from so seventy eight was a really f- rough year. Seventy nine, I think we won three championships, like the one twenty five, two fifty, and the trans trans AMA. In the nineteen eighty, before I left, we won every heat. In every race at the Supercross series, Jeez. up till the Nationals at Saddleback, and we won both heats and both two, 125 and 250. And then I, I actually left to go back to school and to to work into the business side of the business. Did you have a deal to come back on the business side once you'd gotten your education, or you were just like, "Hey, I'm leaving. I'm going to go do this." Yeah, it was the latter could... because yeah. Well, what happened is I realized I saw I thought. The longer I stay in racing, they're going to keep me here. I'm trapped because I'm like, I'm going into a corner. Mm-hmm. And the more we win, the more they want me to stay there. And I want to go somewhere else. I want to learn. I've done racing. Mm-hmm. I've been a racer. Now I've been a race team manager. Now I want to mm-hmm. learn about business. And and so I got the chance to go to Husqvarna in the old days when it was owned by Electrox down in San Diego. And the promise was, if you come work for us, we'll support you and you can go to school you know, on the weekends and evenings in those days. It okay. wasn't full-time, but it was every evening and every What uh, did they want you to do down there? Like, what was uh, your role? I was role? the product manager and the Western Regional Sales Manager for about six months. And then I immediately, my boss got in a fight with the people in Sweden, and so they asked me to take over the North American business. So quite young, okay. before I even had a business degree, they asked me to... What would you have been, 25, 6? Yeah, okay. ish, yeah. Wow. Yeah, so it was a big deal. It was a big step mm-hmm. in a global business. You know, I mean, they owned three hundred companies around the world. And when you first started, was there a, a lot of things you didn't understand or know about business as it as, a, as it relates to a global corporation like that? For sure. And I think we talked about it a little bit earlier. Maybe I didn't have the highest IQ, but I had a decent IQ and a good interpersonal skills. And I think that combination helped me relate to people and learn and build trust and ask questions. Oh. And I think that was really important. You know, yeah. interpersonal skills are crucial, right? Well, and, and at least it's in the same sport where you'd already had success as a racer, which is, you know, that helps. sort of that highest it level. It opens the doors. Yeah. Right, right. They, there's some street cred For sure. that immediately you have. So. No doubt. What, what would you say um, from your time there, what was the biggest learning experience you had? Or what, what was the thing that really stuck with you the most? Great question. Well, I was going to school full time. So I was studying in the evenings and on the weekends, trying to get my bachelor's degree. And at that time though, 
Husqvarna was very strong in enduro and cross country, but not very strong in motocross. Okay. And I believed that being strong in motocross was really important to sustainability. The, the Japanese had come in and really taken over, starting with Roger and Joel that we talked about earlier and mm-hmm. Sylvain Gabors and in front of that, Ole Pedersen that had developed the Suzuki bikes for a few years before they rode them. So the Japanese were dominant. The Europeans, Husqvarna, CZ, you know, Greaves, Mako, they were falling behind. The Japanese were coming on strong. And I think realizing that um, basic fundamentals of like the volume that those guys had and their billing to ability to invest in all the business dynamics started to really mm. set in on me where I realized, wow, the Europeans might not have much of a future because the Japanese are so strong. And that made me more curious about learning about business and scale and, you know, just how you grow things and mm-hmm. stuff like that. I hope that makes sense. It does. And, you know, is there a... Is there a, I'm just curious how this tied into the business, my own curiosity, you know, like a CZ and I don't know all of the products they made or, or I know Husqvarna makes chainsaws and sewing machines and they made other things, but I feel like the Japanese really focused on heavy equipment, vehicles, um, so kind of more in that same motorized vehicle world than, than maybe Husqvarna did and maybe they didn't have as many products. So these Japanese companies grew with all these different markets. Right. Kind of scaling, to your point. Yeah. I think and that's... Was a, it just the Europeans not kind of keeping up with that? I think there's... Uh, the nugget in that is focus, right? What are you going to focus on? Like, what's your business strategy? And in the Japanese case, Honda is motors, right? Honda Motor Company. Mm-hmm. So they make motorcycles because they sell motors to the motorcycle company. Mm-hmm. But they also make cars and they and generators. So they're a motor company and generators and blah blah blah. But Husqvarna at the time was owned by a company called Electrolux, and they're they were actually the strongest globally in what in Europe they call white goods, but that's appliances like okay. washers, yep. dryers, etc. And they also happened to have a motorcycle company which didn't really fit, so they acquired because they were in acquisitions. They acquired the motorcycle company, but what they really wanted was the chainsaws. Mm -hmm. And then after they got Husqvarna chainsaws, which were really premium, they bought two other chainsaw companies, uh, Partner and Johnsarug. And then they put them all in one plant to build scale, Mm -hmm. meaning drive their manufacturing costs down. and, and, uh, And then they became dominant. And way back then, even in the 80s, it was already their strategy to become dominant in um, outdoor power and equipment, and they are today. Mm-hmm. Today, not in the U.S., but globally, Husqvarna is the number one player in lawn and, lawn and garden. Yeah. And um, in 1986, uh, they decided to sell. That was my last job for Husqvarna, mm-hmm. is we were charged to sell Husqvarna motorcycles to the Castiglione brothers, who at the time owned Ducati and, and Kajiva. Uh, and that I, was, I always feel like I'm saying it wrong. Is it Kagiva? Ka, well, yeah. How do they say Kajiva. it? Yeah. Yeah, okay. I think that's fine. But they sold the business, and I was sitting there at my desk going, what am I going to do now? Yeah, I, was that bittersweet? That was my last, it was very bittersweet. Yeah. And I was really afraid of what they would do to the business, and I was right. They destroyed it in about a year. And mm-hmm. so from 86 to about 2014, Husqvarna was essentially gone from yeah. the U.S. market. They were still alive in Europe, and they... Yeah. Won some some supermoto races and blah blah blah, but in the U.S. like all and the funny story is, 
all the dealers essentially took on KTM. So it was a big boost for KTM because mm. all the Husky dealers said, we're not sure we believe in these guys. We're going to take on KTM to wow. hedge our bets. And that was a big boom, boom for jump them. for, and that would have been around uh, the late 80s. Mm -hmm. and, and KTM, of course, got that momentum and never let, let it go, you know. And uh, hmm. so I think, I think, um, yeah, I think that's the best so, way to describe so it. So after that sale, what did, I mean, were you part of, you weren't going to go on and work for them. So what no. was, you didn't want to so stay with Electro? Literally, I literally was sitting at my desk going, what am I going to do now? And a guy called me that said, hey, Mark, I want you to meet the new president of Suzuki. You were here before. You left on really good terms. How'd you like come? You've gone off and got your degree. You're interested in sales and marketing. How'd you like to come on sales and marketing for us? So then I went and had lunch with the president, the new president of Suzuki. Okay. And he, we hit it off really well. And uh, yeah, I joined. And at the time, Suzuki was good. But we introduced, if you think back, GSXRs, the RMs, the RMX, the Katanas, we introduced a whole series of new products. And like I mentioned, went from single digit to 15% market share in motorcycles. And then we launched the Quad Runners and built that up to about 20% share of the mm. ATV market. So it was Jeez. a really fun time. And, and that was and a big market then too, that big market four, then. Four, already, four, yeah. it was already growing. And, uh, and for me, by that time, I had finished my MBA, and uh, I was going to school at, and while I was working, and I just was, I wanted more. And I knew I could never um, go higher than I was in a Japanese company as an American. Mm. So I was kind of hungry to to do more. Which is what? They don't, they don't let you into any kind of executive position there? I was the top American executive, but it's like, where do you go from there, right? There's you know, a ceiling they won't let anyone, yeah, not, not Japanese. I, I think, mm -hmm. at least my opinion, so. There was, no one, there was no one else that had done that, right? And I wanted to learn about manufacturing more. And if you work in, let's say, North America as a, a head executive for a subsidiary, you're still not where the heartbeat is of right. the company, like where do they manufacture them, where do they make the decisions. So that's what I wanted and that's why I got, when I got called to join Arctic Cat, which is an American made uh, snowmobile brand at the time that I helped get into the ATV and side-by-side -side business. They were Minnesota based, they were American, they were publicly traded. Like I could walk out on the floor and talk to the engineers and the, mm. And, and be part of I was wondering how that came about. That yeah. was my next question. That was, so, kinda, that was kind of the best way to describe so it. So how did you, how did they find you? Or did you reach out to them knowing they needed help? Just a recruiter called me. And I actually knew about them because Suzuki was their engine supplier. Mm. So I knew okay. of the name in the back of my head. And I heard they were really good and a really well-run company and very profitable, but they wanted to grow more. And so the chance to, but then, then I f was recruited. So I got to fly back and meet the CEO. And he, he kind of told me his vision. And I had just finished my MBA at Pepperdine and was like, this is what I want to do. Mm -hmm. You know, he goes, and we were about 147 million when I joined. And then I think we took it to about 550 million. And now it's a billion dollar company, of course. Jeez. It was fun. It was a fun ride. Hmm. But, and they were obviously big in snow machines, but they got into what? Side-by-sides, quads? Yeah, um, first ATVs, then okay. side-by-sides. 
went into the watercraft business, but we got out of it because the market was declining. And we thought we could uh, put that investment into the four-wheelers and get yep. a better return for the shareholders, which we did. Yeah. Wow. So what was your biggest takeaway there? Um, sounds like being able to be at the manufacturing facility and, and really tune into that, huh? It was, but to be honest, um, the negative was it was in a small town. Which, of what? Where was it in Minnesota? Northwestern Minnesota uh, called Thief River Falls. Okay. Thief River Falls. So 80 miles from Did you there. live there? You moved there? I, I did. Assume? There. I lived there. My wife didn't leave me, but almost did. <laughs> almost left me. It was tough. You got to like Small snow. You gotta like I snow. got I imagine. Cold winters yeah. and no family, you know, and mm. long winters, like six months. Your wife's but from here as well? She's a California yeah. girl. Yeah. yeah. So almost lost her, but hung on for dear life. And, God bless her. <laughs> God bless her. And uh, yeah, I think the biggest takeaway was when you're in a small town like that, the leadership, the board, I'm a little bit disparaging here, but I'm just being honest, trying to share. When you have a, a board that's that's very local, they think really small. Mm -hmm. They don't think globally. And they were worried about protecting the local area. Like, let's get business to the hotels and the... It was very small thinking and uh, because the company had gone bankrupt in the 80s and so mm. they were like convinced let's not do anything that ever puts us at risk. So they were, I would call risk adverse, mm -hmm. risk averse. And um, then I got a call to join Polaris, which was, I thought, a much bigger, bolder company that was willing to take risks. And of course, Polaris is like a $7 billion organization. When I joined, it was a billion. And then when I was there, we went to four billion. Now it's like seven billion plus, mm -hmm. and they're very aggressive. And, and where are they located? Minneapolis-based. Okay, so, so just you still being, stayed in Minnesota. I stayed in Minnesota a total of twenty years. But oh, really? Yeah. I didn't and then I continued my education. I went to University of Minnesota uh, at at uh, their Carlson Business School, and I went to the University of Pennsylvania at the Wharton School, and um, you know I just kept going back to school to learn and build my toolkit. And yeah. it's, you know, now I'm considered an, an executive scholar at Kellogg at Northwestern, because I've gone there for 10 years. I go about once a year, mm. but I'm just trying to always add to my toolkit. And the reason is I meet young people that want to learn and grow. And if I have more in my toolkit, I have more to offer. Yeah. To help them as I was helped. Do you never get burned out on that school or you always just have a drive to learn, huh? Like yeah. It, yeah, I think so. Huh. So, ah, that's impressive to be able to just continue to go back and and uh, have that drive to really know more. Um, I admire that a lot. Well, thank you. Uh, okay, I'm so blessed. So Polaris, yeah, you, you worked with them. What what was the best thing about that about that tenure? Uh, so there's a guy who was the who hired me. He was the CEO. His name was Tom Tiller, and he was the he was a rising star in GE back when GE was a great company. Okay. GE is a little bit like the Suzuki story, kind of mm -hmm. it's sad, because it's a fraction, but like in the 70s and 80s, GE was like the company that all of us business students looked up to. Jack Welsh was the guy running it, and he's since passed. But he it was just this massive company that was dominant in everything they did. I wanna, I, I feel like I remember that being, you know, like the most, the gold standard for blue chip stocks, right? Like exactly, there was nothing better you could nothing put your money better. To. GE was what everybody talked about. Mm -hmm. Every example was GE, and Jack when Jack was running it, and Tom was a protege to Jack, and Tom 
was the first person in his family to get a college degree. And when he went to school, his I think his grandpa put the money up to get him into MIT, okay. uh, Massachusetts Institute of Technology, very famous mm-hmm. school. And he almost flunked in his first quarter. And instead of quitting, he doubled down. He like got a mentor, got a, uh, what do you tutor. call it, a tutor. Mm-hmm. And he studied like freaking 20 hours a day and went from failing to the top 1% of his class. Wow. And he graduated uh, his undergrad program in mechanical engineering at MIT, which is, you can get any job anywhere in the world with that. Yeah. Mm. And then he went right into his uh, graduate school to get a master's in engineering. And when he left there, he was hired by GE and he started out as a, you know, beginning. He was a Gatling gun engineer. Like the fight, the guns on the fighter jets that shoot like a thousand bullets a a minute or whatever it is. It's a crazy number. Yeah. He was a Gatling gun engineer. And soon he was recognized within the company and elevated. And pretty soon he was running the appliances that I talked about Mm -hmm. before, white goods for GE. And uh, I don't remember exactly where, but somewhere in there, he knew he wanted to be a top guy. And so he quit GE and he went to Harvard to get his MBA on credit cards. Oh my God. And him and his wife, who is a dear friend now, she's like, are you sure? Are you sure we want to do this? And he put himself through through Harvard on credit cards, and they had three little kids, you know. Oh my gosh! And he got his degree, and then Jack Welsh, the guy I talked about before, who's gone now, but he was like the guy. He was like the god of business in America, and he flew to to Boston, and when at, at Tom's graduation, and dude, you're coming with me put him on the jet and said, we're leaving. Don't worry about your family. We'll move everything. We'll take care of everything. You're going with me. And he took over, I think he took over plastics then. So he ran GE Silicons. Yeah. And then, you know, it's, these are billion dollar global companies, you know? Yeah, I just learned not too long ago, they make jet engines. Uh, exactly. I had no idea. Yeah. So there's all kinds of stuff there. So the, to cut to the answer to your question, so Tom eventually left GE, was the CEO of Polaris and hired me to come run the motorcycle business for Polaris. So he, wow. he, uh, he was running it himself because he let the guy before me go, and he was running it himself, and he was like really frustrated because he was trying to run this global company and run the motorcycle business, which was struggling. And they looked for about nine months, and they found me somehow from a recruiter, and I went to work for him. But mm. back to your question, the point was, what did you learn? I learned almost everything that I believe today from that man, from one Is that family. right? Yeah, he's, I learned he was so a, much. He was such a mentor to me. Hmm. And uh, the lessons and the... And a part, part of it was just his education, but part of it was just his collective learning, you know? Mm-hmm. When he grew up, he grew up in a gas station in Vermont. His dad was a gas station owner, you know? And his dad raced NASCARs in, locally on the weekend. And okay. so he learned about oil and gas and he was a motorcycle rider and a snowmobile rider and mm. and that combined with his business education was like super yeah powerful to me yeah. wow talk about sense. even his mindset to, to be able to gamble on yourself like he did he did with totally. three kids and you're gonna put a harvard education on a credit card <laughs> okay <laughs> all right good luck well, but he did it that's crazy it. okay so you left polaris after Eight years? How many years? No, I was there uh, t- almost 13 years. 
12 and a half years. Okay. Yeah, so I so they were nice enough. I was kind of getting ready to retire and they wanted to keep my knowledge of motorcycling in the business even though I was not running motorcycles any anymore. I had stepped out of that and okay. was helping with international trying to build a more global motorcycle business because back then it was just the Victory cruiser bikes. Okay. And then we acquired Indian, so it was relaunching Indian in a good mm. way. And but we were trying to find smaller bikes and different things. Gotcha. So I wanted to get back home to California, here to Temecula. And they let me do that. They let me move here while I continued to work and wind down my career. But I realized at the end I didn't really want to retire. I wanted to do something else. I wasn't sure what that was, so I and eventually ended up starting a consulting business. Okay. And my first client was KTM, who's right here in the in Temecula Valley. So I've been I'm on my ninth year actually consulting with KTM. And you might know we're building a new North American oh, yeah. headquarters up in right yeah, across massive, from Valley Airport. It's a, it's like a city block. I mean, it looks like what Honda Yamaha looks like when you go down there. Exactly. I mean, in terms of scale. Um, I wondered how you got connected with them. So you've got your own business. Yeah. So so John Eric Burleson, who is the his dad is is eight-time national enduro Dick, champion, yeah. King Richard. And so I knew John Eric since he was a little boy because Dick mm -hmm. and I worked together back okay. in the Husky days before we sold it to Kajiba. Okay. So I knew John Eric and then years later, he would go to the track when Dick and I would teach schools. I'd teach a motocross school, he'd teach an enduro school. Like if you buy a Husky, yeah. we'd put you through a school, you know, and then we did that on the weekends. And, and so I knew John Eric and then all of a sudden, John Eric's like, Full grown, gone to school, has a degree, has an MBA. He's the CFO of tech, of KTM North America, mm -hmm. and we at Polaris tried to buy KTM. We bought twenty five percent of it, with the intention I, to buy all that. of it. Yeah, okay. that was in two thousand five. So then John Eric and I, from little boy to like he's like the head American guy. His boss unfortunately passed away about a, a few months later. Rod Bush, hmm. famous guy, and uh, so John Eric was the CEO, and so we were reintroduced and worked really closely. As it turns out, Polaris didn't complete the acquisition. There were some issues that didn't work out, but we re-engaged. And then I was the chairman of the board of the Motorcycle Industry Council, the traders, and he was the vice chairman. So we were running the board kind of, so to speak, and we reconnected. And when I was getting ready to retire from Polaris, he said, I want you to, you know, let's have coffee like the day I arrived in California, right over here at the Starbucks, he okay. said, come meet me. He goes, I want you to be my executive coach. So that was the start of, I didn't know what I wanted to do, but I didn't want to retire. Mm -hmm. So I thought, well, I'll be a, a consultant. I'll start a consultant. You can pick and choose what you want to do, right? And the people I want. And my yeah. boss, Tom Tiller, <laughs> he kind of said this famously, Mark, you've earned the right to have a no asshole policy now. You're out <laughs> yeah. of corporate life, you can just pick and choose who you want to work with and yeah. what you want to work on. So enjoy the... <laughs> That's perfect. I think it was great. Pick what you're passionate about and the people you like, and the minute you don't, bye. <laughs> I was on a board recently that for three and a half years, and I quit the board, and my wife says it best. She goes, what happened? Everyone says, what happened? I was there three and a half years, but they violated my no asshole policy. Hmm. So... That's ironclad. You, you can't. <laughs> no, I have a no asshole policy, so they violated. I'm out. That's a terrific policy. It's just hard to hard to have one of those until you're in a certain position of exactly. of power, right, or whatever. Um, all right. So one of your next projects, you're obviously still consulting for KTM Group. Yes. But you also 
uh, sit on the board of the USMCA. Yes. Tell me a little bit about that and what the what, you know what your guys's vision is for that. Um, what the genesis was for yeah. that to start and so so we looked at so twenty fifteen let's say let's say uh, you know so f- six plus years out of the global financial crisis the motorcycle market wasn't growing it it fell by fifty percent during the global financial crisis by normal measures, which back then was new unit sales. That's how people measured the health of the industry. Sure. Today it's different. It's like used sales and everything. Yeah. But back then it was new unit sales fell by 50%. And we all thought it would grow back, including Polaris. When we acquired Indian, we expected the market to recover and it didn't. Mm. So seven years later, eight years later, guys like John Eric and I were on the MIC board and we were, I was getting ready to retire and we were talking about how do we jumpstart this industry. And we what we did is really quickly, we looked out at other industries that had recovered after the global financial crisis. Motorcycles had been flat, but we found two that were, we called them kindred sports, skiing and snowboarding and bicycling. Okay, Both had recovered very well. And I know you know a lot about bicycling, but we looked at it and we said, okay, why is that? So we did some research and I found a guy who had grown the uh, Ski and Snowboard Association and I found him and tracked him down and like, dude, would you help us? Hmm. Like, we don't have 20 years. You spent 20 years building this up. We don't have 20 years. We need to have a couple years to get this industry revived. Can you help? And he was like, awesome. And he was a, a, a dirt bike guy and a, you know, okay. as well as a bicycle, uh, bicycle guy. And then I found the other guy was the head of uh, USA Cycling. And the same thing, they wanted to help us. They were dirt bike guys. Hmm. And they said, if we can help you share with you what we've learned, we'll do it. So we we didn't think we had time to like figure it all out ourselves. We said, would you share your blueprint with us? What did you sure. do? And, and I'm trying to shorten it up because it was a lot of work. But at the end of the day, what we said, what they said is it's coaching. Like if you have world-class coaches that are certified. And so if you think about it, like if you took your kids to Big Bear, you and your wife would drop your kids off and put them in ski school yeah. and go have lunch. I did that. I'm, you forget I'm from Montana. I'm a skier. We still ski right? all year. My kids learned when they were but two. You, but you do that. And, and I dropped them in a ski it. school. But if yeah. you heard that there was some guy that was a motocross, he won a motocross race someday 20 years ago, and you didn't know anything about him, like would you take your kid and drop your kid off to that guy to maybe but you might not feel as safe as when you go to Big Bear and the guys are there with the official with the, coats and, and they're and they're certified and and so we thought if we can bring we don't want to teach coaches how to teach we want to certify that they're reputable they passed a background check they know first aid they know concussion protocol they know heat heart safety right mm-hmm. and that's all we want to do is certify that these are good coaches and so the vision when we started, and I'm seven years in, all volunteer. It's not to make money, it's because I love this sport. Yep. The sport's been good to me. And we're seven years in, and we have 350 coaches, and we think we'll have 500 by the end of the year, which was our target. It's been hard to get there. But then from, and we've got pretty national coverage, and we have dirt bike coaches and sport bike coaches. We don't teach riding on the street because there's the Motorcycle Safety Foundation. Right. But if you go through those courses, at the end of it, most of the people say, now what? 
what do I do now? And that's our whole point is we'll introduce you to a coach. We'll connect you to the right guy. Take you to the next level, whatever you want to mm. want it to be. And so we've got, like I said, 350. We want to be 500. And uh, it's been a lot of work. It's mm. been the probably the hardest thing I've ever done in my life because it was at a really tough time in the industry and trying to raise the money to fuel it has been very difficult. I can imagine. But but it's it's happening and mm. we have some a great team now and I think that's the key. Okay. So it's it's progressing as you progressing. guys have sort of planned. Good. It's starting to accelerate now actually <clears throat> since we got we raised enough money that we have two full-time employees and that's really the key cuz when you're doing it cuz you love it in your spare time it doesn't get the it's love. It's hard it. to build momentum. It doesn't build. Yeah. Yeah. So. Um, so of all of those experiences, and, and I mean, racing, managing, all these different business positions, which did you enjoy most, looking back? I think, um, I think all of it, um, if you said what's the element within all of it, it's being successful, winning. Mm. So it's kind of winning if you're a motocross guy, you, there's nothing feels better than when you win. Yeah. You're if a competitor. You're, you're a competitor. Yeah. If you're a team manager, there's nothing better than when we win the championship. If you're a coach, it's nothing better than watching a young rider progress and yeah. see the smile on their face. Figure right? something out. You watch it happen. Yeah. And you helped it happen, yeah. right? And as you get older and more experienced, you kind of do less. You're like doing less. You're more asking questions and trying to stretch their mind. And mm. that's the point I'm at in my life. I'm a consultant now. Mm. I coach people. And part of what I do is just ask them questions to get them to think. And then they, they go, I never thought of it that way. Yeah. <laughs> so I think that's really the key is building. You know, when I look back on my career and say, you know, what did you enjoy the most? It's building stuff. So building a brand, building a team, building a business, uh, build, you know, helping people grow. I think that's the best mm. that you can get. It's like hmm. addicting, you know? I love it. I don't want to stop. Well, kind of like I said earlier, um, I've, I've always believed that this sport teaches you everything you need to know to be successful in life. Whether you made it to a pro level or not, if you if you got to a, at least an intermediate expert local level, you, you've learned the right skills and tools if you can just reapply those to go be successful at anything. Um, is there anything you would add to that or, or um, that's something you would agree with? And, and, and for people looking to make that transition, yeah. again, whether you are a world champion, national champion, or local pro, and you're like, yeah. well, okay, I'm, racing's done for whatever reason, I need to go do something else. How do you, what advice would you give? Because you, I mean, you're one of the most successful post racers Thank you. That we've probably ever had on. I so th- I, I, I think that's the best question you could ask me. And the reason is because I look, we talked about, I'm not going to say a name, an individual earlier that I coached that struggled with life after racing. It's hard. Mm. It's hard. If racing is deep in your blood and you were brought up racing and you were a child prodigy and then you won championships and you're successful, like what next? How do I... Even if they have the passion for that, it's very hard to let go. So I think it's a great question. And it takes time. And there's no easy answer. But I think the I think what you do is you figure out what's the next thing you have passion for. In my case, it was business. I wanted to go back to school. 
like as I described in the old days, we did everything ourselves. So I didn't, all I did was my motorcycle. I washed my motorcycle. I worked on my motorcycle. I went to the gym. I trained. I, you know, drove to the races. I raced. That was it. Cleaned my goggles. You didn't have help. You did it yourself. But those disciplines are applicable to really anything. And I think that's, you kind of touched on. So in my case, I went to school. I went to a lot of school. I still go to school. But at the end of the day, I think the school, I didn't really need the school as much as it gave me confidence in myself. Mm. And it gave me a construct, how to think about things, how to analyze problems. And that's why if you look out there and you look at guys like, you know, Bill Gates and Elon Musk and Stephen Jobs, who's gotten, you know, gone, but he left us so much. Yeah. Those guys all quit college when they were young because they didn't need it. Um, I don't think, I, as much as I love school, I don't think school is as important as the construct it provides you and the confidence it gives you. Mm-hmm. And it was kind of like, I think I said that before, I would sit in those classes and go, I didn't have the confidence going in. I was like really intimidated by all these big guys running businesses. Mm-hmm. And then I thought, I'm as confident as they are. I can do this. So I think it gives you confidence. And uh, you know, right now, like I've been in the motorsports industry most of my life, right? Yeah. I raced motocross. I developed motor, motorcycle products. I ran a motocross school. I ran businesses. I was also in lawn and garden for a while. I was in the marine industry for a while. And I realized there, it's the same principles, yeah. right? And now I'm helping my son start a restaurant business. What do I know about restaurants? Nothing. Yeah. Nothing. But I have the confidence that I've done six months of research. I have a book this thick everything I learned and we're going to open a restaurant and it's going to be really successful. Yeah. There's no doubt in my mind it will be successful. So I think it's the discipline of how you think and how you prepare, how you analyze, how you plan and the confidence you have to, and it doesn't mean it's guaranteed. Yeah. Uh, we could fail. Do you know what, you know what I remind, like everything that you're describing and maybe I'm way off base, correct mm-hmm. me if I'm wrong. It's a lot like a motocross start. Yes, you have to practice them over and over and over, and you have to get your technique right and and all that. But starts, strangely enough, are very mental. If you believe that you're going to get that whole shot, and you have to do the work leading up to it, right? And all those things have to be right. But something that doesn't seem like it would be mental is mental. It's all mental. And business is the same way. It's all mental. Yeah. So there's a guy, and I won't say names here, but there's a guy that I worked with, and I went and found him, and then I brought him actually to KTM and the leadership team went through his training and then he's helped some of the racers. Again, I'm not gonna say his name, but he's a performance coach. And he's like, I'm not a sports psychologist, I'm a performance coach. But most of performance is between Mm -hmm. the ears. And so he teaches you how to prepare your mind for success. Mm. And like, if you look at the rock in the corner, every lap, pretty soon you're gonna hit the rock, right? And go down, Mm -hmm. right? Absolutely. Something you got taught as a little kid. Don't look at the rock. Whatever you do, don't look at it. And you'll be riding. You go, oh, there's a rock. Don't look at it. There it is. And you go right over it. But there's guys that we know that are champions that have been through that training. Yeah. And it's applicable to business. It's applicable to life. And I've never heard it really said about motocross. It's said often about golf, the sport of golf, for whatever reason they say in golf is like, Golf teaches you about life because if you have the patience 
to hit every shot and play a good round. And you apply that to your life, your business, your marriage, your child raising, your mentoring, your coaching, whatever you're doing. It's that's a discipline that that sport will teach you. And I think motocross is right there for us to teach us, right? Golf's only taught me that life sucks then, because I can't swing a golf club with any consistency whatsoever. No, and I think you're right. I, the, you know, all sport, if you take the, the basic principles of it, the founding principles, man, go do anything you want afterwards if you can really Im- implement those. Yeah. And I'm, I'm going to frickin' own three restaurants. Like, they're, it's poke. It's high. Oh, yeah. Poke bowls. Yeah, okay. poke bowls. Hawaiian poke bowls. We're going to be the first in Arizona for this brand. And we're going to open three of them. And I'm going to probably build out the state. I don't know anything about restaurants, but I have the confidence that I know how to do the analysis mm-hmm. that I learned from Torsten Hallman. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, 50 years ago, the sport of motocross. Yeah. It's a discipline, right? That's cool. What's Okay, so, so folks that are maybe at that point or, or going to be, What's the first step you tell them? You know, if they're, they're stuck, they don't know what to do, what is that first step? Because I feel like, you know, an analogy I got told is, it's like riding a bicycle. You can't steer when you're not pedaling. Right. So you gotta just start pedaling. Even if it's not the right direction, you can correct. But man, get going. You gotta get going. And I feel like I've had a, I can't tell you how many riders I've had come through this show. And again, I'm not naming names either, but whether they said it on camera or off, or it was just sort of, you could tell, there's a struggle to yeah. find what's next for them. And, you know, other than those few things that I, I've said, like, hey man, you have all the things yeah. you need, just figure out what's something you love or, or are passionate about and go after it with that same zeal that you did racing. But man, what's that first step? What do yeah. you tell them? I think that's a great question and you've given great advice. And if you said what's missing, I don't know, but I think it's figure out what you have a passion for. Mm-hmm. So in my case, I used to, when I was racing, I made fun of businessmen. They're like uh, business guys having lunches and sitting around in pies. And <laughs> But then I started to think about the business. Like how do you grow sales? How do you make money? How do you finance it? And I became curious and that was probably exacerbated because in those days, as I've said multiple times, we had to do everything ourselves. Nowadays, the riders have the luxury of flying to the races and they have a, some, not yep. all, yep. the top guys. So how do you adjust from that? And I think the key is, what do you have passion for? What, and it may not be obvious. Mm-hmm. It may take you a year or two or three to figure it out. And you may have to try some different things. As you said, start pedaling yep. and then change course. Mm-hmm. Like, But I think finding at the end of the day, right? If you if you have passion for something, it's not work. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So if well, I want to, it's work you enjoy. You know, it's work you enjoy. As motocross guys, if you've had any level of success, you're a worker. Right. I would say by and large, you have to be. Um, it doesn't come easy yeah. for anybody. No. It's hard work. Right? So figure out what what work you can do that you would enjoy. Yeah. And, and try a few measure. things. Yeah. And. Um, do you find that thing changes too? Like for me, I know I started out this direction and, and maybe I'm still doing that, but now I'm, I'm finding more of a passion for business um, in recent years and like starting new projects and things. And I find myself now kind of steering another direction. Like I think it will just, life takes you different ways. It does. 
but pedal. So one way of thinking of it that might be helpful is chapters, right? Mm. I just finished a 20-year chapter of riding horses competitively at the national level. We raced, uh, we rode, raised, bred, raised, showed, sold quarter horses for reining and cutting. And if you've mm. seen the Yellowstone show, oh, yeah. they show that reining yep. and cutting and working cow. So we did that 20 years. And for me, it's hard now. It's just like when I stopped racing. It's in my blood. I like miss my horses. Mm. I only have two left. They're in Minnesota. I had to ship them to Minnesota, long story. But I miss it so much. But what I've concluded is that's a chapter. Mm. I had a 20-year chapter. I met incredible people. I had probably 60 horses in that time. I had four great ones, world champion level horses that I, I, I can, I know, I feel their heart. I know them intimately there. And, but it's a chapter. And now I'm gonna help my son go start a business. Hmm. And so I think racing is a chapter in one's life. And how do you use it to springboard your, what you learned about competition, discipline, work ethic, training, fitness, mental focus, how do you springboard that into the next, whatever yeah. next is? Yeah. Is it, I'm a bicycle dealer? I don't know. Is it, I start a restaurant? Yeah. I don't know. I don't that's know up for you. Yeah, that's, that's up for each, you. Each person but the discipline is there, right? Mm -hmm. And the, and the, the construct for how to do it and how to be successful, it's the same. Yeah. It's the same, I think. I like that, you know, the chapters, and I, and I feel like some people do have a really hard time they can't close flipping the a page on, a, and on the last. I'm struggling now. Yeah. Just as I struggled, and one of my friends that's a racer that's struggling, it's hard to close that chapter, but you just got to look back on it and go, that was 20 years of my life. Yeah. Now I'm going to the next thing. Yeah. you got to do it. And, and you, keep growing I, and, and learning, right? And I think, right to that point right there, once you get over the hurdle of like, okay, that's that's done, and you figure out what the next thing is, you'll have a new excitement for whatever totally. that is. You, you'll be renewed in a way that you would never be if you stuck with the old no. thing. And it's not a regret. No. It's not, it's just a chapter. Yeah. It's just a chapter that helps build the next chapter and make the, the next chapter more successful. I think, I don't know. Yeah. I don't know another way of thinking about it, but I think that's I think it's good great. One. I think it's phenomenal. You were inducted into the Hall of Fame, AMA Hall of Fame. Um, what does that mean to you? That's pretty, you look at that list of people in there and. <coughs> yeah, so. It's pretty heavy duty. It's pretty cool. Um, it was a, quite an honor. And then uh, that was 2000. And there's a few other people in there, including Torsten Hallman. And years later, I was called. My son and I were leaving Pala. And I was told that I was gonna be elevated to a legend status along with Torsten Holman, who I keep saying, I keep mentioning his name. And the guy at the time who was the chairman of the board said, Mark, would you like to call Torsten and tell him? And I said, of course I would. And I did, I got to call him in Sweden and tell him we're both being elevated into the legend status of the Motor AMA Hall of Fame. That's and pretty so cool. we had both been inducted in 2000 and in 2013 we were elevated. And he goes, he called me back, he goes, I'll make a deal with you. He goes, I'll come if we can wear tuxedos. Let you and I both wear tuxedos. I swear to God. What was that about? Hey, he just wanted to class it up. 
And unfortunately, he had a heart uh, attack. Oh, and geez. didn't wasn't able to come. And his friend Hawk and Erickson accepted on his behalf. But we got elevated, and it's a pretty big deal. Did you wear the tux for him? I did. Had a boy. I did. All right. For him. That's pretty cool. And uh, wow. Yeah, and so I'm proud to say I, I'm in the Polaris Hall of Fame, which is a pretty elite deal. I'm in the Trailblazers Hall of Fame, which is also a pretty big deal. And uh, last fall, I got uh, inducted into the uh, Edison Die Lifetime Achievement Lifetime yeah. Achievement Award mm. Hall of Fame at at Paul at Glen excuse Helen. me yeah. at Glen Helen. So, and there's a piece of stone out there. With my, but the the point of that one is how life goes full circle. Like yeah. Torsten Hallman and Edison Die were real. They monumental impact to my life, and I'll never forget it. And so t- that makes an extra honor and achievement. Yeah, absolutely. Hope it makes sense. No, it's that's incredible. Um, well, tell me a little bit about what you're doing these days. You say you're you're yeah. Obviously, still working with KTM. Yeah. You're advising different people. You're helping your son with. I guess I just answered your question. You're real busy still. <laughs> still. Yeah, no, I started my consulting business. I'm in my ninth year. KTM was my first client, and they're my longest client. I've done work for other people like uh, Intense Bicycles. Now I'm on their board. I was a consultant, now I'm on their board. I've done some work for Fox Racing, for Jeff and Kelly. Um, uh, a few other companies that you wouldn't know. Those are a couple that you wouldn't know. In the know. industry, sure. Yeah, yeah. and um, what I'm because I'm my age now, uh, I still love to work, but I'm trying to be way more selective and pick and choose what I want to do and the policy. who I want to work with. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> the policy. <laughs> well said. It's, it's a great policy. It's a great policy. <laughs> One day I'm going to work that into my own thing. Um, what do you guys do for fun? I mean, you so you don't really ride horses a whole lot anymore? Mountain bike, fitness, golf, uh, hiking, motorcycles. I, I mainly ride on-road nowadays. I have a big okay. Indian touring bike. Right. My wife and I just did a 700-mile trip two weeks ago up into the Navajo country. Oh, wow. To the, we rode, rode our motorcycle up and rode along essentially the equivalent of the Grand Canyon, but it was uh, Canyon de Chez. And then the next day we rode on horseback with an Indian guide through the, and we saw where the Anastasis built a village into the side of the mountain. So that kind of stuff, like we ride the motorcycle. And then I have a KTM 890 Adventure. So I ride on and off road. Not much dirt bikes anymore, mainly because I had bad shoulder injuries and I'm pretty careful. Okay. And people say you ride on the street, but you're you're not comfortable riding in the dirt. And it's like, if I'm riding the dirt, I'm pretty sure I'm gonna fall. <laughs> and when I ride on the street, well, I'm not gonna fall. Well, there's inconsistency in yeah, the dirt, right? Where exactly. you're, you happen to do this a lot. And yeah. is that, that was kind of your injuries left over? We all have injuries. Shoulders, hips, shoulders, and, yeah. and knees, all that stuff. No replacements yet? No. Okay. <laughs> yeah, not gonna let. I mean, there's guys getting the knee and, and hips oh, now in their 40s, 50s, so. It's tough. Yeah. But I did, uh, I've been doing, I'm a student of it. I've done stem cell and PRP and, I'm, I'm like anti-surgery. I gotcha. like do everything else to avoid surgery type of guy. Yeah, so, even just, and even yoga, even flexibility, when it comes to joint pain, massive, massive. massive. And I feel it when I don't do it. In fact, my back is locked up a little right now from doing too much riding and then coming home no, and no no yeah. stretching, you know. <laughs> so, um, so, but no more horses, really. Kind so, because those uh, are less dangerous again, too. You fall I, off one of those guys. I got hurt worse on a horse than I've ever been hurt on a motorcycle. My horse, so if you see the reining where they run and Stops, then they slide, yeah. 
So I was sliding. I was just about to slide in in St. Paul in the big stadium there at six in the morning. I was warming my horse up to show and I was running full gallop and I just about to say, whoa, and he tripped oh. and we went end over end and I broke like kind of all my ribs and punctured a lung and like I was in the hospital in uh, intensive care for a few days and shit like that. Like it's gnarly. Well, yeah, what does that thing weigh? 1,200 pounds, you know. And he rolled over the top of you at oh. least once, right? Yeah. yeah. So it was gnarly. So, but I, you know, I still, um, I love horses, mm -hmm. but I would say today it's uh, motorcycles, golf, fitness, hiking. Yeah. Those are my... When you're a great place for it, you're living yeah. in Arizona, so you've yeah. got Sedona. Everything you love is right Grand there. Grand Canyon. Arizona's golf. a beautiful state. People yeah. don't realize it. And there's so much to see. You yeah. know, like I said, the Navajo Nation and, you know, the whole history of the cowboys and Indians through there. The, yeah. There's a lot to learn. Wild West, for sure. Wild West. You just got to get through those three or four months in the summer. But I still love, you know, you know, I love Formula One. I'm going to the race Saturday, right, tomorrow. Yep. Um, I love it. Yeah. You know, it's hard to get out of your blood, as we said. So you still follow closely? <laughs> of course. And, yeah, yeah, okay. Close as I can. Um, th so this is a question. It's pretty open-ended here. Um, from a business perspective, what is our sport doing right, and what do we need to do better? Well, and, I, and I mean, collectively, sure. not, not just racing. You know, there's so many facets to just that. Um, but even, you know... Even to, to, to your point, to keep our sport healthy, which I feel like maybe this COVID thing has been good for it. It was really good for it. We sold so many bikes. Yeah. Stasic, in my opinion, is one of the best things that's ever happened Agreed. for us. Yeah. Because you're getting two, three-year-olds now yeah. learning how to twist the throttle. Yeah. And that, not all of them, but that's going to stick with a lot of them, right? I think that is one of the biggest advancements for the health of our sport. Agreed. In a long, long time. Agreed. Since the Weisinger. I would tell you. Yeah, I think we got a gift with the COVID. There's no doubt it was a gift in terms of people stopped what they were doing. They had to, and they tried to figure out what they could do. And sports like golf and outdoor activities that were non-team blossomed. Golf was one, motorcycling was another, right? The unit sales grew dramatically. So if you said, okay, do we just sit back? I think the answer is no. We have to make sure that those new riders and returning riders have a great experience. Mm -hmm. So I think that's up to the dealers, mm -hmm. but I think coaching is really an important part of that. So a good coach. I mean, if you think about any sport, if you want to learn to play tennis better, what do you do? You get a coach. Want to play golf better? Get a coach. Want to get more fit? You get a coach. Yeah. And that's why I think coaching is so important to the sport of motorcycling. And that's why we've believed, even before COVID, we believed that building up the coaching was uh, really important to ensure that people had a safe, positive experience so that they become lifelong motorcyclists. Absolutely. I mean, it's one thing if we sell some bikes and people ride and they have a bad experience and leave, but it's another thing if they love it yeah. and they have the passion you and I do yeah. and they stay in the sport. Right. So how do we do that? And I think coaching is one part of it. I think the dealers, though, is the other part of it. It's like, what kind of experience do I have? And then, of course, there's the Internet and the information. But I think dealership 
engagement Huge. is super important. Grant Langston told me a story. Um, he's one of my partners in Elevate, which you and I need to talk about. For sure. And we will. And we will. But he said, as we've been having discussions, he says, one of the huge things I've seen at my dealership is, you know, one example he gave me, this mom walks in, she's looking for a 110 for her kid. They're completely sold out, have been for months. So he, she bought a KX65. So she's walking it out and he, you know, the salesman's just doing his job, right. selling units and whatever. So he sees her walking this bike out and he goes down, hey, just want to make sure you got everything you need. You got, you got oil for the bike. And she goes, oil. What do I you need mean? oil. <laughs> So he goes, oh, okay, come here. Let me. This is a ratio, right? This is oil. Now this, you know, and he explained all that to her. Air filter, you know. I don't know where dad was, but mom was buying this for her kid. And and I'm thinking, he goes, if she goes home, blows this thing up day one, because there's no oil experience, they're done. Yeah, they're never coming back. But he goes, hopefully, I took that 30 minutes and I walked her through just some really rudimentary stuff. Hopefully, that changes their experience, you know. And, and we want to address that in our app as well. These newcomers. And, and wrap our arm, arms around them and go, hey, what questions do you have? Yeah. How can we help you with stuff you're not sure yeah. about? Because for, for the dealership, for the health of the sport, those returning customers right. that, that become lifelong motorcycle fans, yeah. that's what we need. Not, you know, you come in, they blow it up, or they go for out sure. and get hurt right away because they yeah. didn't get coaching. For sure. They're done, and they'll never come back. And so how do we replicate that? And I think, as you said, websites can help, you know, apps can help make it more repeatable, mm -hmm. right? But, um, but the dealers play, nobody a, like play a huge part of Grant that. is yeah. the owner, right? Yeah. So he his name's on the store, right? Yeah. He gives a shit. You know, like the sales guy's just trying to get his paycheck and, you know, with all due respect, I'm not trashing the no, sales guy, but... What's he supposed to do? Tell yeah. him, nah, this isn't the bike. No, no I gotta go know. sell more to yeah. my paycheck to yeah. pay, feed my family. Yeah. And that's nobody's fault, it's just the way it is. Yeah. So I think those are the things, though. If you, if you said, how do we make the sport healthy? Make sure that people they get an experience, have a great experience, mm. and they become lifelong riders. Customer service, Customer right, service. and community. That's it. Safe. And I think coaching is one element. It's not the only element, it's one. Yeah. yeah. Um, so to back to the question, what are we doing right? What are we doing, what can we do better? Um, what are we doing right? What's going right? What do we need to do, continue to do? Well, the sport itself is exhilarating. And you and I both have the passion for it, and we know people that have the passion. And so passionate people are the number one thing that um, I think get people into the sport. Mm -hmm. I think f films and videos and things like that can help, certainly on any Sunday. Mm -hmm. In the 50th anniversary of on any Sunday, help. I'm trying to sponsor one, and my brother and I, and. Phoenix right now to get it aired just to help the sport yeah. um, that can help um, uh, I think so the sport itself is addictive and um, I do think that the trend the last few years to make more affordable motorcycles is a really good trend mm -hmm. I felt that for a long time they got we became such a hardcore enthusiast sport in the magazines, everything was shootouts and elevation. When the magazines were big, most of them are gone now. Yeah. But it was like shooting out to the highest level. Right. And it became exclusionary, right? We need to be more inclusive. And so really affordable, smaller motorcycles and used motorcycles and making those um, more accessible is really good. I think that um, in terms of what we're doing wrong, 
there's a lot of people that have worked their whole career in the sport and they're just trying to make it to the end to get their pension or their retirement or whatever. And I think we need new blood, to be honest. I think we need younger, mm. more talented people that relate more to the younger customers and think differently. So I think I'm an old guy. I think there's a lot, too many of me around, old guys that have old ideas. We need young people that we empower to bring new ideas, new ways of thinking, fresh thinking to the sport. You know, I mean, things like the the Motorcycle Industry Council. I was the chairman in the Motorcycle Safety Foundation. You know, those things are very old and there's old people running them mm. with all due respect. I love them, but who's the next generation? Yeah, you've got to start who's, grooming them into, into exactly. those roles. And I don't think as an industry, we do a very good job of, of grooming the next generation. I don't... There's a, there's a definitely a sense at that level in some of those organizations, not everyone, where they're what I call squeezing the puppy too tight. Yeah. You know, you, you're going to kill it, right? Like, let, let bring some other people in, open up and share some of your knowledge with them and because they're going to take your spot eventually, somebody, right? You have to, you have to. Anything healthy mm -hmm. has a succession plan mm -hmm. and it has a grooming plan for the next generation. And I don't see that in our sport or our industry. Maybe KTM, because that's part of what I hopefully try to do for them is we're yeah. trying to really modernize the organization and bring new people in. But I think most of the rest of the companies, with all due respect, I love this industry, I love the people, but it's like too many old guys like me hmm. calling all the shots. We need young people. That's interesting. What do you think about the racing side of things I, you know, from your era or 70s, 80s, you could go out and, and we hear it time and time again from our guests on here. Yeah, I would race Monday night at this track. Tuesday nights we'd go here. They were racing five, six nights a week. Yeah. Or, you know, during the week, weeknights and then weekends they'd race. People don't race really anymore. You know, even at a high amateur level, they'll pick five or six races a year they do and that's it. And it's just, we go to the track during the week because there's a track open and prepped every single day. Right. I'm gonna go do an, you know a couple hours of riding and I'm I'm home and I'm done and and you know and look I'm guilty of it I I don't I've got so many things going on I sneak out when I can sneak out and I I ride and then there's no way I'm dragging my family to the track all weekend yeah. we got soccer going on and you know other things so I don't like that though I think that yeah. for the health of our sport and the community right because that's what you used to build when you'd sit at the track at a race there was. The competition on the track, but then there was also this very tight community being built in the pits. Yeah. And we we lose that. I yeah, think. I don't know the answer because I think, like when I was a kid, uh, first off, when I was a kid, we all rode bicycles. Mm -hmm. And today, just a data point, because one of my other things is bikes and all kids bike, which is getting all kids to ride bicycles, right? So when I was a kid, we all rode bikes. Mm -hmm. To work, to school, it was our freedom. Today, only about 25% of American kids that go through kindergarten know how to ride a bike. That's a frightening that right? statistic. So if you think about it, and if you think how hard it is to get someone interested in motorcycles, if they never rode a bicycle, they're freaking never gonna ride a motorcycle, right? Right? Wow. So 75% of the people that used to ride aren't riding anymore. So there's a program called All Kids Bike, and that's another topic, but a guy called, a friend of mine called Ryan McFarland, started that program and he owns Strider Bicycles. Okay. He's the founder of Strider and he's a motorcycle guy. Part of the reason he did it is he's trying to feed two-wheelers into the sport mm -hmm. of motorcycling. Um, and An so another phenomenal product for 
Yeah, and so what we do is we put up money, like I'm trying to do one right now by my house at a grade school. I'm trying to furnish, they get 24 bikes, helmets, they get training for the teacher, PE teacher, and the kids learn to ride a bike as part of PE. And guess what happens? No surprise, here's what happens. Their self-confidence goes up, their grades go up, their obesity goes down, riding a bike. It's common sense. Yeah, you know. So so if we can multiply that, but I think that, so it's one thing to get the kids into the sport. Then we talked about how do you ensure that they have a great experience, and that's coaching and mentoring and great dealers. Not transactional dealers, but relationship. Mm -hmm. I think that's a really important point. Transaction is I sell the bike and I get a commission, right? Relationship is I bring a new family into the sport and we sell five or 10 bikes over the few years and they come back for service and parts and the dealership does better, but I'm not sure the current incentive structure rewards people for relationships. It should, Mm -hmm. it should, but I think that's one change you can make that says, how many new families did you bring to our sport and how did you do on your customer retention? Because in most sophisticated businesses, they're way more about retention than they are about. Mm -hmm. That's your easiest client, right? So I, I think we're like 25 years behind the times in the industry in terms of that aspect. Mm-hmm. I could be wrong. Interesting. Could be wrong. But. Interesting. Um, which era of all, and we talked about this a little early on, but you've seen all these eras, you know? Yeah. Uh, and each one cool in their own right. What, which, which was your favorite? If you had to pick a decade, let's say. Well, I kind of lost or didn't answer your last question. I think the world is different today and we all have uh, multiple interests. So it's probably never gonna be like it was before. Cause like I told you before, I golf, I hike, mm. I ride my dirt bike, I ride my street bike, I, I ride my mountain bike, I go to the gym. I think that's just the way the world is. So when people are engaged in motorcycling, the key is, can we keep it as one of their things that they do? And I think that's back to experience. So I just wanted to yeah. close the loop on that. Okay. So the era for me, of course, is the early days of motocross because I'm so grateful for people like Edison Dye and Torsten Holman for bringing the sport. Yeah. You know, it was people that had vision because otherwise we'd be freaking doing flat track still. <laughs> yeah, With right. all due respect yeah. to flat track, yeah. right? They like had this vision to like bring the sport here and they showed it to us and we were, we became addicted. Yeah. And motocross is like, I don't know that I've met anyone that doesn't know what motocross is now. Like. If they've never ridden a motorcycle, they, yeah, they, they still know what know. motorcross yeah, is, like sure. sport by, or a, you know, supercross yeah. and motocross. They, they know Jeremy's name or Ricky's. It's a big or, sport. Know. Yeah, it's a big sport. Yeah. Huh. It's part of the fabric of America, right? Pretty neat to be there. Say you were there at the beginning. I you got so. to watch. I feel lucky. Literally the, the start of a sport, you know. I mean, Edison and I literally sat at my kitchen table when I was 15 years old my kitchen table in Hawthorne, California with my mom and dad in Edison. He flew from San Diego to LAX. My dad and I picked him up, brought him to our kitchen table. And he said, if you ride for me, I'm gonna send you to Sweden to learn about the sport of motocross. But you have to learn everything you can and bring it back and help me grow the sport of motocross. Did you realize who he was at that time? Like how significant that was or not really? No, I didn't you. really. Yeah. I kind of didn't really get it. It couldn't have said in at that age. <laughs> and then, and then you know, whatever it is, 60 some years later to get, uh, you know, honored with his, you know, 
award. Yeah, but pretty cool. Pretty cool uh, full circle for you. <laughs> Um, all right. Well, man, we've stolen enough of your day and, and, uh, I sure appreciate you taking the time. We, we got one question we always ask everybody at the sure. end and that's how you want to be remembered in this sport. Oh, that's a good question. Um, legacy is, you know, one of those things we all yeah, wrestle I think with at the time. So no, I think it's, um, that I took what I learned and the gifts I was given and passed them on to others to enjoy the sport and grow as individuals and not just in the sport, but in business and life and whatever they want to do. Sure. I've had so many people help me. So many people. I've told you a couple names, but there's been so many and I'm just trying to do the same thing now. I'm yeah. trying to give back. Like how can I give back? Do you think that's to unique to our sport where, where you've had all of these people kind of take you under their wing or is I that, know. I don't do you know. know. I don't know. Yeah. I don't know. I know that in our sport, though, yeah, I mean, like, I think I told you, I sat at the table with Carson Hallman and his wife and told him, you had a profound impact on my life. Mm -hmm. Profound. It's like, mm -hmm. that was really important to me to be able to do that. Yeah. yeah. And there's lots of others along the way. He's one. Yeah. He's a big one. But uh, it meant a lot to him, too. So I'm sure. Yeah. I'm sure it did. Well, it's been just an honor to have you on here. Honestly, I, I um, obviously have always known your name, and our, we've never really crossed no, paths. No, never. Is, it's crazy. It is strange. It's crazy. As long yeah. as we've both been involved. But <laughs> as I was going through this, man, I just so blown away with your, not just your racing, your national champion, which is amazing. But to me, the really neat stuff is is what you did after. Well, and, thank you. Um, I feel lucky, and uh, lots of doors have opened, and you know, probably racing in the name and. And uh, the discipline, like I said, was the the construct or the formula to to the other things. Um, so I hope what I do back to you know what do you worry about? I worry about young kids that all they know how to do is race, and it's like life after racing. If I uh, if I had how many words is that life after racing? Three words, three words for racers: life after racing. Are you thinking about it? Do you have a plan? Are you saving your money? Yeah. Are you thinking about school? Are you thinking about, because it won't go on for very long. It's a very short career, very short. If you get to 30, which yeah. would be the average, that's a lot of yeah. life left to go. Yeah. And, I, and I, Ricky Fowler could have been a Supercross champion. He was that good, mm -hmm. right? He chose to race or to play professional golf and he's struggling right now, but he's very wealthy. Yeah, I think he, he made the right. He will do very well. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. But how many Ricky Fowlers are there, right? How many racers, they're making a lot of money and they spend what they make. It's going to stop. Mm -hmm. And you will feel like I do. You will be in pain, you know, when you yeah. get older. So like plan for that, like put money away, take care of your body, plan mm -hmm. for the future. That's if I could give, you know, three words to the kids racing today, those would be my three words, life after racing. Hope that wise, helps. wise words. Uh, I hope, I hope that anyone still racing will listen to that. Um, it's been just an absolute <laughs> it was awesome honor to meet you. Thank Finally. you so much. <laughs> Stay tuned. We'll be back to wrap up the show. All right, folks, welcome to our sponsor spotlight. Special guest today, you mountain bike fans may recognize this person sitting next to me. 
It's Mr. Curtis Keen of Specialized Bicycles. Welcome to the show, man. Great to have you. I've been bugging you for a while to get in here. Yeah, the whole LA thing, traffic gets real. Uh, you kind of plan your life around it, but we made it happen. And thanks for having me. I appreciate I'm excited. it. Yeah. The good news is uh, you're probably only going to have to drive three hours in it to get home, you know, today. So if, if, if all goes well, <laughs> all goes well <laughs> if we're lucky. It is a holiday <laughs> weekend, all that fun stuff. So it, it's all good. Yeah. Well, uh, first of all, I want to say I'm so stoked to be partnered with Specialized. Uh, as a guy who does a lot of bicycling myself, Specialized has always been the gold standard. And so uh, as we try to really just partner with the best companies and brands to have you guys get involved with the show years ago uh it's it's an honor man so stoked to have you guys on likewise you know thanks for everything you guys do for us as well and we just love being tied to the whiskey throttle show and everything else you guys do yeah to method wheels to all the companies to all the stars to to motocross athletes we support and don't support yeah it's all we're, we're all fans as well and you support a lot of moto guys a lot yeah yeah uh you know i've been taking care of a lot of moto guys since i came on board in 19 and it's slowly transitioning it's gonna some other people are gonna take it over but i'll still be involved and okay take care of you guys and uh some other key people but still involved and just gonna get more help so we can do things better but we're still here on board and we love moto as a brand and we're not going anywhere yeah, yeah. awesome well i mean i would say there's a massive segment of the motocross riding population that Rides bicycles also, mountain bikes yeah. especially. They so. go hand in hand, right? Like they do. I race mountain bikes, but the times I thought I was on a dirt bike and that's just dream of doing what you guys do and vice versa. When so. you hit a fun little jump, you go brap. Oh yeah, for okay, sure. All right, good. I'm that's driving down the highway and, you're and I'm looking at hills <laughs> and I'm like, man, if I had the skills, I'd hit that thing in third gear. Yeah. Instead, I'll just dream about it. Well, we've been bugging you forever about, hey, you know, can we get a discount code? We get asked by people all the time. The problem with companies that have dealer networks is that can be very... It's tricky tricky we'll yeah. say that you yeah. will really piss your dealers off and we don't want to do yep. that but you guys kind of came back to me with a solution here big promo for something that we all burn through on, on <coughs> bikes depending on the type of riding you're doing the more enduro or downhill it is especially you're going to burn through tires and you guys are doing a 25 percent off promo yep june 1st to june 15th you go on to specialized website just go right? on the website directly yep and any mountain bike tires 25% off, just type in the code WTS25. Uh, is that capitals, small? Capitals, yep, Doesn't WTS, okay. yep, you're all good either so way. WTS, Whiskey Throttle Show 25, 25% off for the next two weeks. Um, so take advantage of this. You know you're gonna use them, even if it's not in the next 30 days or so, just get a set. Um, and while we're talking about tires, let's jump into a little bit of, just like in motocross, you have different tires for different applications, different yep. types of dirt. Um, take you guys have a new downhill tire. Yep. Take us through that a little bit and tell, tell us what that's about. Uh, so we have all new downhill tire that launched just recently, this last week, the Cannonball. Uh, we involved our downhill World Cup team, Lloyd Bruni and Finn Isles. Huge uh, development. It took years. Mm -hmm. um, tires are hard to 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 make a good tire is mm -hmm. uh, difficult to say the least. The compounds and they call it like a recipe actually how they mix the batch and all that back in the facility um well yeah you got the compound the tread pattern the carcass the sidewall there's like all of these components oh, yeah. that change yeah. what it does too soft they just tear off super easy people are not happy it doesn't work too hard you can't grip on rocks roots mm. dry loose etc so we took our time and with the downhill team and engineers and collective feedback 
we we nailed it, you know. And Loic and Finn went one two in qualifying at the first World Cup, and then went two three. Unfortunately, the nature of the sport and all that, they uh, they're out for this previous round, but they're mm -hmm. they'll be back. And so the Cannonball is an all new downhole tire. It's uh, what we call grid gravity, call that downhole casing. So super thick casing, and then our compound tire design is all new and. T9 is uh, is how we identify the let's call it like the softness of softness or hardness of the tire itself. The like rubber, the, the rubber okay. itself, you know. So T9 is your softest. That's super slow rebounding. It molds and grips to whatever surface you have, roots, rocks. So it'll kind of form to it instead of deflecting off and sending you off this way. Um, it just stays planted. It's okay. you know it's very supple and keeps you going where you need to go. Um, that's sort of what we call our T9. And evolving from that, it will go to a T7 to a T5, a bit harder and a harder again. And that is, we'll start jumping around bike to bike, depending what kind of riding you do, right? Mm -hmm. So your stump jumper, trail riding, weekend warrior, you might run a T7 like in the back, some people in the front like a T7. Or you hop on a full-blown cross-country bike where um, rolling resistance is key. You still want traction, but you want something hard and you don't have something that's, uh, you don't need tons of grip on. It's pretty grippy out or you just, you're focused more on rolling resistance and that would be like a T5. So gotcha. that's kind of our, our range there. And those, of, you know, a T9 obviously, like common sense would dictate it's just going to wear out a little quicker than a 5. And roll slower. And roll slower. So those are your, yeah. your give and takes. Yeah. What are you looking for? Yeah. yeah. Your T9 would be... A guy that's riding bike park, races yeah. downhill. Uh, you know, he gets to the top of the hill just to get to the fun part. You <laughs> yeah, know, like gotcha. I'm going to suffer, but I'm going to get there. And I care about the downs. And it's crazy. You know, like they said, dusty loose and all that. And he wants traction, all that for the downs. And T nines his jam. Yeah. So let's just say that gives you a good idea of what to look for. And this is all written on the side of the sidewall, yep, so you can exactly. identify what they are. But if you're a guy who's looking for a good all around all mountain tire. You know, I do a little bit of climbing on the stumpy, but mm -hmm. I also, we come down some enduro runs coming down. What would be a good all-around tire if you're going to suggest something to somebody? I would start with what we call grid trail. And grid trail, it gets a little confusing, but I'll try to simplify it. Uh, it's your casing, right? So that's your sidewall, and that's like how much support you have. That equals the way the bike feels and what kind of tire pressures you can run and protects the rim and protects yourself against uh, flats and all that fun stuff based on the casing and what you do. So if you're racing XC, uh, majority of the time these guys are uh, using control casing. So control casing is super light, thin, uh, and then you get bump up to grid trail, which is kind of middle of the road, say like a weekend warrior or you're, you're climbing and you're doing a fun descent, whether it's at uh, here in Temecula, uh, what's the place you guys, Greer Ranch. Greer Vale, yeah. Greer, Vale, uh, grid trails, pretty dang good. Sometimes a grid gravity in the back, I say if you're maybe a heavier guy or if you're just, you're really like, you're not easy on stuff, mm -hmm. you do a bit thicker in the rear for a bit more protection and insecurity so you don't flat or blow up your carbon wheel. So um, grid trails I think is kind of middle of the road okay. where most people use like across the United States. Gotcha. You can get that in a T9. So you have grid trail and then the next step up is grid gravity, AKA like downhill casing for bike park to racing downhill, all that stuff. So gotcha. call it three, three solid ones. Grid trail is the most common and what you'll find on 
trail bikes. And you can get home. each of those casings in the T5, 7, and 9? <clears throat> Great trail, yes. You okay. can go T7, T9. This is where okay. it gets, if you pay attention on the website and you know what you're looking for, you know what a T9, T7, okay. it's all on the website. Gotcha. So when you go on your, it's called butcher tire, you can find a butcher and a grid trail casing with a T9 compound, or you can go T7, or you can go butcher, grid gravity, and only T9. Gotcha. Because okay. that's all people care about. If you you know have a downhill tire, you just you, you want, want sticky rubber, yeah, 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 you gotcha. want a point and shoot, you just you're going down. Yeah. So. Okay. Well, good stuff. Take advantage of this, guys. These are, you know, tires aren't cheap, just like dirt bikes, and 25% off is a pretty good, a pretty good little bump there. Um, only have from June 1st to June 15th, WTS25. So get on to Specialized website and look at that. While I got you here, take me through some of the new bikes. You guys have a new Levo SL that's just out or just coming out? Mm, we don't have a new one. So we okay. have the Levo SL. Last time we hung out, we, we launched the Levo. Yeah. Yeah, the Gen 3 Levo, Amazing. which you have, which yeah. has been great. And at the time we launched at what, what we call our S-Works, the top of the top, mm -hmm. which was uh, you know kind of eye-opening, you know, the MSRP and all that. 15,000, but that trickles down to a pro and then expert level, which are the bikes, the motor, the battery, all the technology, geometry is all the same. We just, the price will kind of change what components you have. Sure. So, no, not the electronic shifters and right, some of that right. stuff goes like, away. Right? You know, the Bluetooth and all that. The yeah. best of the best. Like, yeah. I mean, I love that stuff. So. Fighter pilot stuff. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, and we launched with those three, okay. which is just kind of what we were able to do at the time, but we always knew the back of our mind. We have other ones coming, lower price points, you know, again, same geometry, just will, instead of being a carbon frame, we'll bump down to like an alloy, which there's nothing wrong with it. And so we finally did that um, a few months. So I was like, almost like half a year down the road. So we have the just Levo, Levo alloy, then Levo comp alloy. So you can get into our Levo e-bikes starting at you know, 5,500 bucks. Yeah, and that's a big misconception because, you yeah. know, people saw that first model that dropped and they went, well, who can afford one of these? I, I did the same thing. <laughs> so, <laughs> some people can, but most yeah. people probably can't or they're yeah. not willing to. But man, at five grand, you're into a, a amazing bike now. Same e motor, same motor, yeah. same battery as the $15,000 one. Mm. You're just, same geometry, most of the adjustments, you're just talking aluminum frame, different components. Uh, that's how we change it all. Mm -hmm. It's still an awesome bike, adjustability, our S sizing from an S2 all the way to an S6. So if you're five foot to six foot six, we got you covered. And that's a great entry point to get into the market. And if that's your price point, already figuring out if you even like, right. like these bikes and am I gonna use it as much as yeah. I think I am? Will the kids, all this. And you just evolve from there. And yeah, and if you do like it, they're holding their value like crazy right now. Nuts, yeah. And and or you can you can just upgrade your componentry pretty easily. Yeah, and what's awesome too is this is kind of new for us the last few years is we're now tying ourselves into our motorsports dealerships. So where you yeah, buy your that. Honda, you know, like Temecula Motorsports. Yeah. Uh, Thousand Oaks. Justin Brayton uh, owns a shop that's now ten cycles. Right? Yeah. Yeah. That's pretty cool. Yeah, he's. You know, part owner in that, so he's you know obviously retired now, but he still races, uh, yeah. you know, mountain bikes tons. He loves it, and so yeah, he's a, he's a dealer too, and all that. So it's, yeah, that's again, awesome. it goes hand in hand, like we're talking about in the beginning. So yeah, so yeah. tell your dealer to get a hold of Specialized and start selling some uh, some e bikes there. Yeah. Um, what about some other models you guys have rolling out? I think uh, another thing to touch base on uh, uh, a lot of 
maybe say most people don't know about is a Levo SL. So you hear Levo and the Levo SL is like, all right, what, what am I even mm. like looking at? What's the so difference? Yeah. I'll keep it as simple as I can. We'll say SL as in super light, but half the power as a Levo and a smaller battery, smaller motor, which equals roughly eight to nine pounds lighter as a package. Mm -hmm. um, it doesn't have like that torque and grunt like your Lebo does. You, yeah. When you ride that thing, if it's in turbo, oh man, like yeah. you can go up anything. That's part of the fun sometimes, right? Um, it's more like a normal bike in terms of the way it handles, the way you pick lines, your braking points. So if you're a hardcore mountain biker, racer or whoever, and you have your trail bike and that's all you ever ridden and you've ridden a full power e-bike, some people are turned away because they don't like the weight. Feels too heavy. Yeah. yeah. But a lot of motor people or just people in general are the complete opposite. They love the yeah. weight. So we're trying to find like that balance to keep sure. everyone happy. And that's where the SL package comes into play. A bit lighter, um, less power, but it's basically, it just gives you a bit of a you know, bump. It's a little like, bit of assist. Yeah, it's, it's like, only one mode, right? Like it doesn't have no, eco trail. Three. Oh, it does. Yeah, same. Thing. They're just lower power. All lower power, okay. lower torque. Actually, the SL motor, instead of being super torquey and to get peak power, it likes to be spun at a higher cadence. Oh, Where the okay. Levo, you can just like grind right. and just go up anything. Put the puppies on back or whatever you want, and trail tools, whatever. Um, so the SL. Again, is just like you were, just imagine if you were crazy, crazy fit, like Nino Schertner or uh, Christopher Blevins, XC uh, stars who are just insanely fit. Like I can't fathom how fit they are, those guys are. It's like I had their legs for like a day. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like, yeah. like you're just, you're flying up the hill. Yeah. So it's, you still have to work. That's a misconception I think with the SL. It's an e-bike so people think, oh, you don't have to work. Uh, it's funny. Uh, a good friend, Corey, newer, he he got one. He's like, I want to try one out before I buy one. Awesome. So we took him up for a ride. He goes out for a ride and he wears his heart rate monitor like he always does with his normal bikes. We rode for three hours and he's he's in his 40s, but he's fit. And his average heart rate was like 150. Mm. He's on an e-bike for three hours. It's a huge misconception that you huge. just sit there and pedal. That, that's like people saying motocross isn't physical because you yeah. just sit there and turn a throttle. It's equally as ignorant. Or like downhill. You know, right. If you're racing downhill, it's pretty I've, physical. I've found the heart rate comes up. It's not so much work in the legs. It's that you're balancing and you're moving through things and yep. navigating and negotiating things so much quicker yep. that it's it's working other muscles. Like it's more of an upper body and core workout. Adrenaline, yeah. all that. You're yeah. like, ah. <laughs> so much fun. That's yeah. the biggest thing. My cheeks get a good workout because I smile the whole way down my <laughs> But We call that like the, uh, the turbo smile. Yeah, the turbo smile. That's I've it. yet to meet a person who has ridden a Levo or e-bike the first time come back with a frown. No. It hasn't happened. Maybe it will. Like I look forward there's, to the day. There's some real grumpy. Hear why. There's some grumpy cross country guys that probably. Will. Oh yeah, yeah, for sure. <laughs> <laughs> um, but they're they're uh, they're awesome. They're fun, yeah. and the SL is a I say a good um, transition for like the guy who just loves his trail bike, doesn't want an e bike, but you know some days you're just tired and you yeah. want something to kind of like your mellow days, mm -hmm. and it's a it's a it's a good. You can still take it to bike parks and yeah. do all the. Same line. Well, and, and all that. I imagine you could, even if you really wanted to get a better workout, you could ride that with the motor off. Absolutely. Where, you know, like my Levo, I sometimes if I'm going with guys who don't don't have e-bikes and they're not don't have as many miles on as me, I'll just turn it off. And yep. I can still pedal that thing up. It's mm -hmm. it's heavy. Yep. 
But uh, I imagine with the SL, it's even easier. So yep. you could you could really do it all with that thing, you know. Yeah, and imagine too with the e-bike too, a great like um, way to like my dad doesn't ride, you know. Obviously, I'm fitter, younger, whatever. But he's on an e-bike, and I could be on an e-bike, e-bike or normal bike, and he'll ride say like full power or half power, which is enough for him by all means. It's plenty fast for him, yeah. and he'll run out of talent real quick. Same way I do on a dirt bike, <laughs> and so. I, he'll climb at 50% and say I'll climb the uh, Levo 70% or like less or something so I get more of a workout or just to keep up. Yeah. Or if you're riding with like your, your son or daughter who weighs 100 pounds, you weigh way more, you're like, all right, you got to stay in the lower power yeah. mode because if they're in turbo, they're just going to walk away from you. Yeah, it really, it, it kind of equalizes people yep. from all walks, yep. which is neat. Just There's yeah. too many pros and too yeah. many good stories with people that has changed their, their, their lives in a way. Just life gets in the way of kids and work and yeah. you stop writing because life and this will get you back out going again create endorphins and create yeah. new habits and that's uh, it i you know i had t gone through this period of time where i just didn't have time to ride that much mm -hmm. and so when i would go out on a regular bi pedal bike it was torture man like yeah. i it was miserable i wasn't enjoying it because i was so out of shape and so when i got on the levo it brought my love for it back mm -hmm. and I got some fitness back with that. Then when I jumped back on the Stumpy this year, I still I'm not in great, wasn't in great shape. Yep. But I mean, within like ten rides, my fitness is back, and now I can jump Comes on either back. one. Yeah. You know what I mean? So it was just a really nice oh, yeah. way to get me back into it. It gets you back out there. Yeah, it creates like all right, all right, that was yeah. fun. Like it gets like the new routine going, yeah. right? And next Absolutely. thing you know, like you know, to get fit, it's not rocket science. You's, you got to put in the work. Yeah. It's simple and it's hard sometimes. Like people's lives are crazy. You've got five jobs going on Yeah, <laughs> yeah <and the laughs> at time, one point in time. Right, yeah. that's the thing. Kids, if you, if you, you know? can't, you don't have time to ride a couple times a week, yeah. it's tough to build that back yeah. up, you know, that cardio. Yeah. So S Cycling sucks when you're out of shape. It does. Like when I'm out of shape, and yeah. which is people are way more out of shape or uh, where I feel out of shape, I like, ask my wife, I'm like, oh, that tastes sucks. <laughs> Yes. It sucks. It's painful. It's painful. <laughs> you know? so, well, yeah. this is uh, this is an awesome promotion, and uh, we're going to push the heck out of this on our social and stuff. You guys, 25% off tires. You only got two weeks, so get on them now. WTS25specialized.com, right? Yep. So check them out. Uh, follow them on Instagram. I am specialized. Uh, amazing company, amazing products. Thank you so much. Thank you. For just yeah. being a part of our we're show still. here, man. Yeah. Love, love partnering with you guys. Thank you, and uh, thanks for watching. Stay tuned. We got more shows coming. I wanna be bad with you, girl, like we're robbing a bank. I wanna be mad at the world, like you took you. All right, folks, that is our show. Thanks so much for tuning in. Uh, as always, we appreciate it. I want to thank uh, Mark Blackwell for his time today. Uh, what an incredible career that guy's had. Not not just the racing, as I mentioned to him in the show. It's it's what he accomplished afterwards that to me is so impressive. And when we talk about the struggle to jump from the end of your riding or racing career into what's next, there aren't a lot of people who've done a better job than Mark. And, and the influence and impact he's had on this sport are profound. They're just sort of behind the scenes. And uh, it, to me, it's a, an honor to be able to let him share his story. And so maybe folks down the road can appreciate what he's done, not just on the racetrack, but in our pits and in our industry as well. So big thank you to Mark for coming in. And uh, as always, I appreciate you guys tuning in. We do have a lot of new content coming online here in the next several weeks. So please be on the lookout for it. WhiskeyThrottleMedia.com, get over there and check that out. Uh, Ask Ping is going there in, in a video format. I've got a written 
column that will be going back up. There's been a lot of requests for that. We've got some amazing project bikes that we're going to be showcasing. We've got uh, a medical column that's going to be going up. Um, all kinds of content. Our new site lap video, preview video, our riders meeting, race review show, all coming online, all going to be uh, really cool additions to the Whiskey Throttle Media family. So check those out. And as always, tune into this last part of the show here where we, we talk through our sponsors and support them. They keep this show coming to you. And uh, if you guys appreciate the content, uh, we've got to take care of those folks. And, and I assure you that these are the best products you can buy in their respective markets. Uh, I do a lot of research prior to signing them on. So um, support them. Thank you guys so much. See you soon. The Whiskey Throttle Show is brought to you by Yamaha. Join the Blue Crew today and take advantage of all that Yamaha has to offer, including amateur racing trackside support, awesome Yamaha contingency, Jason Rain's demos and instructional classes, and frankly, the most high-performing motorcycles available on the market today. Whether you're looking for a four-stroke, a two-stroke, a side-by-side, -side, a quad, a boat, a generator, Yamaha prides themselves on absolute top-level quality and reliability. Rev your heart with Yamaha and join the Blue Crew today. Sore necks, aching legs, tight backs. Our bodies aren't designed to be constantly tense, but what can we do about it? Help your body relax with TheraBody. TheraBody creates effective, natural solutions to take charge of your daily wellness. By combining education, innovation, and over a decade of pioneering technology, TheraBody makes wellness more accessible for everybody. A traumatic motorcycle accident led TheraBody founder, Dr. Jason Westland, to create the Theragun for his debilitating pain. Now the Theragun, the only physician-created percussive therapy device, uses a scientifically calibrated combination of depth, speed, and power to relax and release your deep muscle tension. Recovery Air is TheraBody's world-leading pressure compression therapy system that flushes out leg soreness so you can bring on peak performance. Most electrical muscle stimulation is ineffective. Instead, TheraBody's sleek PowerDot takes away the guesswork with an intuitive app that customizes intensity and placement so you recover faster. Regular foam rollers hurt. TheraBody's Wave Series delivers powerful vibration and pressure to help you recover with less pain. Don't settle for mystery CBD. TheraBody's TheraOne range of topical and ingestible full-spectrum USDA-certified organic CBD products are redefining high-potency CBD for wellness and recovery. 250 professional sports teams exclusively use Theragun and other TheraBody products to take recovery into their own hands. Method Race Wheels, bringing you the lightest, strongest, fastest wheels in off-road for your truck, van, sprinter, UTV, or SUV. They've been dominating the Baja 500 and 1000 and every major off-road event around the world for years with high quality and performance. They also look amazing. They come in a bunch of different styles and colors for your rig, so check them out. You can get 20% off a set of wheels using our code WHISKEYTHROTTLE. No capitals, no spaces. 20% off using our code. Check them out. Also, coming soon, the R1M Project. Method Race Wheels makes a dive into the motocross world. Stay tuned. Troy Lee Designs is the leader in off-road motocross apparel and style. So whether you're looking for a cool new paint job for your helmet, maybe your name and number on your helmet lettered on, you're looking for new gear, you're looking for mountain bike gear, off-road gear, they've got the brand new Scout line and GP and SE models. Troy Lee Designs has it all. They've been leading this industry for decades, and they're going to continue to do it. Check out TroyLeeDesigns.com. SKDA is a moto graphics and seat covers company with several offices based around the globe. For too long, bikes and graphics have all looked the same. They just start to blend together. SKDA is working to change that. 
With super clean and unique design work, a bike with SKDA graphics stands out in a crowd and adds a touch of art to the world of moto. Hey, we need that. SKDA prides itself on providing premium customer service both before and after the sale is made. Visit SKDA online to view the current product range and get in touch with their team to get your bike refreshed. I want to just make a, a mention here that these guys, not only is their design way outside the box, very, very cool. They'll work with you on custom things. The, the products are incredible. Okay, they'll speak for themselves. But what's really awesome, and you'll notice this the minute you order one of these, man, they give you an email saying, hey, the product's been shipped. Uh, hey, the product is here. It landed in this spot. Hey, it's coming today. Hey, your product's been delivered. They, they're just so good about staying in touch with you and letting you know where it's at. Customer service is 100%, and uh, that's just something that's rare these days. Check out SKDA. Here at the Whiskey Throttle Show, we're all about supporting brands that support our sport. And there's one tire company that has never walked away from the sport of motocross and supercross, and it's Dunlop. When times got tough and the economy took a crash, Dunlop stepped up and stayed with our sport to support it and the athletes and individuals that love it. Their MX-53 line and MX-33 lines absolutely dominate this sport. Every national championship at the pro level has been won in the last decade, and nearly every single amateur national championship at Loretta Lynn's has been won on a Dunlop. So if you're looking for high performance, you're looking for amazing quality, and you're looking to support a brand that never turns its back on our sport, there's only one choice for you, and it's Dunlop. Pro Circuit is the leader in aftermarket performance and quality. Whether you're looking for a little more horsepower out of your engine, some quality hard parts to improve the way your bike feels and looks, better handling through suspension or linkage or linkage arms, Pro Circuit is where you need to stop. It's your one-stop shop. You can go in there and get everything you need to make your motorcycle go from average to exceptional. Pro Circuit's got enough number one plates on their wall to side an entire home, and there's a reason for that. They're very, very good at what they do. Uh, the highest quality products with one goal in mind, and that's winning. Check out ProCircuit.com. Nihilo Concepts is leading the way in aftermarket hard parts. With their secondary on-switch device, something that was much needed in this sport, They've been innovating and bringing new products to market. Their latest is the new Nihilo Run-Cool Brake Pistons. They're designed to be stronger than stock and provide exceptional cooling performance with less brake drag. Most OEM caliper pistons are made from aluminum that just can't hold up to the heat and extreme demands of serious racing. When they get hot, the aluminum will distort, causing loss of hydraulic pressure and brake failure. Nihilo's Run-Cool Pistons limit the area that boiling hot hydraulic fluid is able to come in contact with the piston leaving two-thirds of the piston volume in open air with breather holes to enhance the cooling ability. It's made of a proprietary stainless blend, which is better at dissipating heat. You have issues with brake fade or brake failure, check out Nihilo Concepts among their many amazing hard parts and carbon fiber parts and titanium. NihiloConcepts.com. Senna is the leader in motorcycle helmet communications. There's really two prongs to why this is important. One of them is safety. If you're a dad who's watching your kid out on a track, being able to communicate with him about a rider down or a track situation is imperative. You don't want him coming over a jump and seeing a rider down and getting himself involved in that. So from a safety aspect, it's huge. You can also coach them. So if you see them taking a line, doing something that they could be improved, it's very easy to just click a button and speak to them right in their helmet in real time. This has been a proven coaching technique used by many motorcycle coaches. There's also just the simple fun factor. Being able to chat with your buddy while you're out on a ride, share music between one another, answer phone calls, 
It just takes your riding experience to another level. So whether you're using the 50S or 50R connected through a mesh network in your helmet, or you're using a Tough Talk headset connected with one of those, Senna is the leader in quality and performance in motorcycle helmet communications. Check them out at Senna.com. Seat Concepts is the leader in motorcycle saddles. If you're looking for a new cover or a new seat entirely, Seat Concepts is the place to go. They make custom seat foams catered to your height, weight, riding ability, riding type. They also have waterproof covers and, and foams that will not break down if you ride in a lot of inclement weather. And they pride themselves on being much more comfortable than OEM or any other aftermarket company. If you're looking for a new seat or a new cover, Seat Concepts, there's nothing better. Need to replace something on your bike that's worn out? Look no further than Pro-X. These guys aim to make everything OEM quality or better at an affordable price. And they've also got some new products coming. So right now, chains, sprockets, anything inside the, in the engine internally, air filters. If it wears out, Pro-X makes it, and they make it at a quality level that's OEM or better. And they've got some new things coming that are awesome. A complete engine rebuild kits for the Polaris RZR 800s, Need to replace something on your bike that's worn out? Look no further than Pro-X. These guys aim to make everything OEM quality or better at an affordable price. And they've also got some new products coming. So right now, chains, sprockets, anything inside the, in the engine internally, air filters. If it wears out, Pro-X makes it, and they make it at a quality level that's OEM or better. And they've got some new things coming that are awesome. A complete engine rebuild kits for the... If you've got a little Grom that's looking to get started in the motorcycle world, the best way to get them going is on a Stasic bike. They've got multiple sizes, so from your very young Groms to those who are a little more grown up, you can start them safely. They've got controls that allow you to control the speed so he can't get going too quick. They can touch the ground. There's not a lot of noise to distract them. It's the perfect way to get your child involved in motorcycling at a very young age. And if you've got a kid who's already out ripping, there's series popping up all over. For those of you in Southern California, go to www.ameminicross.com and join their local series. If you're outside of this state, contact your local track and ask them about starting a Stasic class at your local track. Get over to Stasic.com and check out all they've got going on. Motul USA, uh, we, we lean hard on these lubricants to keep us uh, on the track and on the trail. And Motul has proven their quality over and over, uh, most recently with their Dakar win with Ricky Brabeck. Uh, they're sponsoring Supercross teams. They're diving into our sport again full full throttle, and uh, we're stoked to have them on board. Amazing products, top to bottom. Motul USA, go check them out. OGO is the leader in motorcycle storage solutions. As motocross riders, we need a gear bag, we need a helmet bag, a boot bag, a backpack, a travel bag, a hydration pack, maybe a tool kit to wear around your waist if you're on an off-road ride. OGO makes all of that, and their products are absolutely top of the line. I've got stuff I've had for several decades, just to give you an idea of how long this stuff lasts. If you're not sure, ask around, talk to folks who've had some of this stuff, and they will confirm that OGO's quality is absolutely second to none. So go check them out, OGO underscore powersports.com, and look at all they've got to offer right now. You ever heard the phrase that the harder you work, the luckier you are? Well, at Luck Apparel, they believe in an acronym that kind of sums it up a little more simply than that, laboring under complete knowledge. So it isn't just some random chance that determines what your outcome or results are going to be. It's being educated and working your butt off to get it done. And I think that that goes hand in hand with the motocross industry. You don't get lucky into a win. You work your ass off and you make it happen. 
So check out Luck Apparel. They've got T-shirts, hats, sweatshirts, all kinds of cool stuff. And we're stoked to have them on board here at the Whiskey Throttle Show in 2022. If you're in the market for a toy hauler trailer, car trailer, cargo trailer, look no further than Custom Outfitters. One of our new partners for this year. Uh, these guys do an awesome job, even so far as to dial in the inside of Sprinter vans, which have become the new standard mode of transportation for moto. Uh, these guys can handle it all. Uh, they use ATC world-class trailers, uh, top shelf service and performance in their products. Uh, Custom Outfitters out of South Dakota doing an awesome job. We're stoked to have these guys on board this year. So whether you're looking to just do some camping with the family, uh, looking for a trailer that can fit all your toys to go out to the desert or wherever, uh, look no further than Custom Outfitters. And finally, last but not least, Specialized Bicycles. If you are in the market to start pedaling, this is where you want to start. Uh, they've got great entry-level bikes all the way up to the Cadillac, the new Levo um, e-bike. Uh, any, anything in between, man. It doesn't matter what kind of riding you're doing. Go check out and start with Specialized. Don't waste your time on something that's going to break. The derailleur's not going to shift after a couple months. Get something quality. Uh, these guys make it. Specialized leads that industry. Hey, everybody. Welcome to another episode of MPH Moto E performance and health. We got coach Rob Beams here with us. I'm your host, David Pingree. And uh, we're going to talk about something today that affects probably every single one of us at some point in our lives, and that's low back pain. Um, what causes it? What are some ways to prevent it? And um, how do we get rid of this? Talk to me. Yeah, low back pain is uh, it, it's a real deal for us because you think about how many times we stand up and sit down on this bike. And, you know, even as we're sitting right here, notice how your quads are coming in at a 90-degree angle. And, you know, all that does throughout the day is just cause that angle joint just to get tighter and tighter and tighter. Then, you know, what other sport are you going to be going from a seated position and up and back? I mean, I, I would be cool to do a video, see how many times you stand up in one lap at mm. your favorite track. When we overuse those muscle tissues, you know, if you look at your quads, they go from your top of your kneecap, the patella tendon, insert up at the top of the hip bone. Every time you use that muscle, like any other muscle, it just tends to get shorter and shorter and shorter. Well, now what ends up happening is those quad muscles are pulling down and tilting the pelvis forward. So for the listeners, think about when you're sitting in the doctor's office and they have that chart of the pelvis. So the muscles, if you're looking at the pelvis from the side, the muscles on the front are grabbing and they're pulling them forward and down. So what that does is that causes the front of the pelvis to tilt down, and then you get that curvature in the lower of your back called lordosis. So now you got that curvature. We go, oh, man, my low back is killing me. So the natural tendency is to think, hey, I'm going to go and I'm going to figure out how to stretch my quads. That's the worst thing you can do. And, and I want the listeners at home to try this. Put your right leg up on a desk or a chair, put your foot up, and then try to do a hamstring stretch. You'll start to feel that burn in the bottom of your knee and the back of your leg. That's a, what we call the um, myotactic stretch reflex. So what it is, it's essentially a, a self-defense mechanism in the belly of the muscle tissue, specifically the Golgi apparatus. It's a neuromuscular message that goes to the brain that says, hey, you're about to tear the muscle. So if you're holding one end of the rope and I'm holding the other, if we have it nice and tight and somebody walks up and pushes the middle of it, it's either going to pull it and burn it out of my hand or yours. Mm -hmm. Or you and I can move one step closer and we make the tension in the tissue less. When the muscle's already tight, and, and I don't want to lose the listeners, you're standing up and sitting down, the quads get tighter, just tilts the pelvis forward and pulls it down. 
Well, now you've got that curvature in the small of your back. Now you're going to go stretch a muscle that's already guitar string tight. The self-defense mechanism invokes, it's trying to bring the two ends closer. In the muscle world, we refer to it as an origin and an insertion. Every muscle has both. Well, its only goal is to get the two ends closer. So here you're trying to stretch something that's already tight. The self-defense mechanism is to protect it. That's why we end up tearing something when we stretch. Okay. So the catalyst for why it's tight is because how much we use our quads and then sitting. Whether it be at work or whether it be driving to and from the track, this is the worst anatomical position we can ever be in. So we only make it worse. Then we exacerbate it by trying to stretch it. The way to fix it is to not stretch it, but rather foam roll it. Mm. You know, when you and I... Uh, if you take the skin and you start to massage it, whether by you know squeeze and release or by friction and massage, that's what the foam roller does is it just literally changes the message and the consistency of the tissue. Direct pressure is a message to the brain that says, hey, let's open this blood vessel up. Warm blood goes in. The warm blood elongates just like a piece of metal. Anything that's cold tightens. Mm-hmm. Anything that's warm elongates. So when we're looking at trying to get the tension out of the origin and the insertion of a muscle, best thing to do, foam roll it let it open up with warm blood. Now that muscle's less prone to you all of a sudden trying to put a stretch in. I still don't want you to stretch. Mm. Let's, let's say we're getting ready to go ride. Do foam rolling, get geared up, go do two or three laps like you said, do a stand-up drill, let the blood flow get into the legs, slowly bring your speed up on the track. Now you're done for the day. You're out of your gear. The muscle temperature is at its highest. That's the time to do yeah. single-legged stretches. Quads, make sure you get all four of them hamstrings, lower lumbar, nothing aggressive, just maybe the sit and twist. There's a multitude of things. We have them on our website that you can check out. But to your point, that's the cause of it, and that's the best way to turn it around. Get back home. If you have a luxury of a jacuzzi and a pool, do what we call contrast therapy. Mm-hmm. It doesn't have to be you know, freezing, and it doesn't have to be boiling. A 10, 12-degree difference is enough. Oh, is that right? Up. Yeah, it doesn't have to be crazy. Okay. Um, I always look at it this way. If I'm putting you into a bucket of ice... How much are you going to want to do that tomorrow? <laughs> yeah. You know, if I put you in boiling water and you feel like a lobster, how apt are you going to want to do that tomorrow? Yeah. Let's set ourselves up for some success by saying, look, the, the body's going to respond to slight temperature deviations. Usually a jacuzzi in a pool, that's ideal because mm. you have a jacuzzi at 100. Your pool is probably 72 to 75 degrees. That would be ideal. You say, yeah, yeah but Rob, you said 10 to 12 degrees. I'm just saying, let's find a range that you're going to tolerate. Yeah. Because I, I, like, I'm not good with cold, so... I don't care what you tell me it's going to do for me. If it's brutal, I'm not going to do it. Uh, let, me, let me dispel some myths or confirm or deny. Uh, I've always been taught to, to protect your low back. You need to work on your front. So good abdominal strength. Uh, lots of core exercises and things like that. True? 100% true. Um, what a power dot. Uh, I like that for the massage feature yes. for your low back. But there's also, there's also a, a, a variety of different massage types that it has. And frequencies that it has and um, durations and you can change the intensity. To me, great for post-riding. A lot of times, uh, I don't know if anyone's noticed this, you have a long day at the track. Jump in your truck, 30, 45 minutes, drive home an yeah. hour, and you get there. And when you go to get out of the truck, it's that's locked. when it's like, oh, man, yeah. it's bad. Throw that power dot on, do a couple massages on the way home, on the way home and all yeah. of a sudden you get out and it feels nice. No, and to your point, you know, we're here in, in San Diego we're from Orlando. Well, we can't travel with massage rollers and all that. Michaela only travels with Power Dot. And we got out here. We're from Flat Florida. We're in San Diego. We're loving the hills. We're loving the cooler weather. And she's like, man, my legs are, I'm really feeling this. 
And we flew in on a Friday. We ran on Saturday. She did Power Dot that night. And the next day, she was faster than she was the first day. Mm -hmm. And, you know, usually when you're traveling, it takes a couple days to get going. And, again, not just because Power Dot sponsors your show. This stuff works. Mm -hmm. And the fact that it, it, you know, literally can fit in a woman's purse, it could fit in your nice computer bag, whatever it is. And, it, and because it does have warm-up, it does have a cool-down, it does have all kinds of different modalities for different therapies. Let's say you do take a digger. It's got a modality for it. Mm-hmm. And it had to offset that inflammatory response. If you've got back-to-back ride days, you know, some of us are not always fortunate to ride back-to-back, and you get a weekend away, and you're, like, so pumped. What do we do? We ride ourselves Overdo to a miserable state yeah. on Friday, and at least that can keep you back so you can ride again on Saturday. So we, we don't leave home without our power dot because of its convenience. I don't mean to embarrass Michaela, but, you know, a lot of times she'll do power dot while she's cooking mm. because we'll have big days. I mean, we train hard. I mean, we, we, it's a lifestyle for us. It's just not yeah. something, you know, we train hard. We we're fortunate enough that we do our workouts early in the morning. When I say early, we do mid morning, but you know, for the rest of the day we're at work and we're doing videos and doing other stuff. And she loves to cook. I don't like to cook. She loves to cook. I'm a good cleanup guy. I can clean a main mean bowl, okay. but uh, she likes to cook real food. And it's interesting. You come in and she's wired for sound. She's got, cause we're fortunate enough. We've got a couple of them and she's all over. She's got the pods on and her legs are quivering. <laughs> and I'm like, sweetheart, what in the world are you doing over there? She's like, and I, I knew what she's doing. I'm like, what setting do you have that on? It looks like you're trying to, you know, really. And she's like, no, nah, it's just, and I feel so good afterwards. And then this is such an, and again, I'm not sponsored by power dot or anything else. I, I'm just a big fan of it. I can always tell the next day because on the warm up. She's quicker. Mm. And I'm like, what is your heart rate? You know? And she's like, well, that's the same range. And I'm like, dang gum, what a difference. And, and, it, and it always is a huge epiphany for me because I'm always trying to find ways to get more out of the human body mm. in a healthy way, in a systematic way, but a sustainable way. Sure. We have a, we have a mantra board up in our office and I like to re- adhere to the KISS program. Keep it simple and sustainable. Most of the listeners may have jumped on, oh, keep it simple, stupid. Cause we always go into this punishment mode. Again, I'm not a rah, rah, rah guy, but what frustrates me is it's real easy for me to get in front of the camera, in front of our, our, our listeners and, you know, hellfire and brimstone, make it so absolute, make it so hardcore. Dude, I don't want to live like that. I don't want our listeners to feel like they have to live like that. I'm trying to balance a family and a job. You are, they are. Let's be realistic here. And I'm just going to, you know, always share with our listeners what we know works and the truth. Stretching doesn't work when you're cold. Yeah. You're going to tear something. Yeah. But you get somebody that's heck meant that that's their pu- that mantra and that's their platform and they're going to prove me wrong. Well, that's all right. I've been doing this 38 years. I've seen more people report to our wellness clinics because of stretching than because of exercise. Yeah. It's just, like you say, understanding the why. Well, and that's probably another great uh, topic for down the road is the, the sure. right way to stretch and warm up. Yeah. Um, we well, have done warm up. but Well, we have those on our website. You know, you? if you go to Complete okay. Racing Solutions, you know, once you get the muscle warmed up, use the power dot before you go out and you ride and you're done for the day, then take those single muscle isolated, one muscle, we call them single muscle isolated stretches, big word. Don't do it the wrong way and hurt yourself. Mm-hmm. You know, you'll see guys trying to stretch their quads and they're just taking their heel and they're just burying it against their butt. Well, that's just putting a lot of distress on the patella tendon above and below. Mm-hmm. Now you say, oh, my knee hurts. Well, yeah, because you just torque the shit out of it. <laughs> you just put your trying to stretch your, your quad. Yeah. <laughs> so just knowing how to do it the right way. Well, a ton of great resources over there. Check out CompleteRacingSolutions.com. Uh, all kinds of stuff for warm-up, for training, for nutrition. Uh, can't recommend that enough. And he's also got memberships over there uh, that uh, can really get engaged with you if you're looking for a more personal 
kind of situation. So happy to help. Thank you. And uh, thanks for watching. We'll be back with more MPH videos soon. Thanks for watching the Whiskey Throttle Show, now available on the Spot Network, an independent standalone streaming platform live now on Apple TV, Roku, Amazon Fire, Google Play, Android TV, most smart TVs, and all phones and tablets. Look for future live shows and specials only available on Spot Network. Download the app today on your favorite device. And don't forget to like and subscribe and click the bell to get alerts for all the latest content. Follow us on Twitter at W underscore throttle underscore show and on TikTok, Facebook, and Instagram at Whiskey Throttle Show.